how do you feel about the business today, aside from the fact that it is a lucrative business for uh, someone of your ability, but how do you feel about performing in it today? Is it more cut and dried? Is there more challenge today? Yeah, there is. Let's take the announce part of it. In those days, the predominant commercial was the one-minute commercial. And, you know, I've always thought of myself as a salesman. My job is to sell. My job as an announcer is to move that stuff out of the supermarket, off the shelf, and into the home. You had a minute commercial. In 60 seconds, you could develop a story, a feel, and a sales message. Today, you're limited. The longest commercial, how long has it been since you've seen a minute commercial? Instead of a big, ugly glass picture tube, you saw the performers in your own mind. You painted your own big-as-life version of each moment with that loving, creative brush we call imagination. I enjoyed the people in it, too. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of loyalty, camaraderie. Mm -hmm. See, we were together so much. The extraordinary thing was the care that went into radio shows. There was a perfection about the radio actor it was extraordinary. It was a very small group of people. And I always felt myself enormously privileged that I was able to join that group because they didn't take everybody in. And radio, as we're talking about it tonight, is gone. Now, how do you feel about that? Is someone at fault? That's a very, very tough one. I don't know. I suppose it comes down to a criticism of networks, or uh, networks certainly had to make a choice there. You can't be both listening to the radio and looking at the television, and I suppose they put their money on the chips of television at the time. I've always wondered why it had to be. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 144. My name is James Scully. Few industries underwent as much change in a 10-year period as radio. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we present part two of our miniseries on radio in the world in the fall of 1957. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is Michael Silverman's piano rendition of Adovino Petrucci's 16th century processional dance, The Pavane. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And the first eight chapters of Burning Gotham are out everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. It was a 2022 Tribeca Film Festival audio selection. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers.
I think I just want to read some uh, notes that I wrote here on the back of a record jacket that I did for Pittsburgh Paints. I did a number of radio commercials for them. And uh, this uh, apropos, I believe, it says, I have been a radio buff as long as I can remember. Longer, actually. According to my mother, there was a table Philco in the delivery room of the California Lutheran Hospital, dragged along by the nurse who hated to miss young Dr. Malone. <laughs> I was born on August 7th between a Rinso commercial and the NBC chimes, <laughs> which makes me a Leo with Lever Brothers as my rising sign. <laughs> p.m. on Wednesday, October 2nd, Game 1 of the 1957 World Series took to the air. It pitted the Milwaukee Braves against the New York Yankees from Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. Bob Neal and Earl Gillespie were on the call for NBC Radio, while Mel Allen and Al Helfer telecast the game. The upstart Braves were led by future Hall of Famers Hank Aaron, Eddie Matthews, and Warren Spahn. The defending champion Yankees were led by Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, Whitey Ford, and manager Casey Stengel. Now for the 19th consecutive year, the Gillette Cavalcade of Sports brings you baseball's championship classic. To thank you for using its products, Gillette airs sports events the year-round, including the Rose Bowl game, Blue Gray game, Kentucky Derby, All-Star Baseball game, and the best in boxing every Friday night. This broadcast is authorized on the broadcasting rights granted by the Commissioner of Baseball solely for the entertainment of our listening audience. And any publication, rebroadcast, or other use of the descriptions and accounts of this game without the express consent of the Commissioner is prohibited. A battle of southpaws in this first game of the 1957 World Series. And as we look down from our perch here at Yankee Stadium, the veteran southpaw Warren Spahn, cranking up and tossing down to Bob Keeley, the bullpen catcher coach, the 36-year-old left-hander, one of the great southpaws in the history of the game, this year in the National League, finished with a record of 21 victories and 11 defeats. Across from Warren Spahn on the first base side... The Braves moved to Milwaukee from Boston after the 1952 season, leaving Beantown to the Red Sox finishing in the first division the previous four seasons before breaking through and winning the 1957 NL pennant. The Yankees were playing in their 23rd World Series in 37 seasons. Now Ford's earned run average for the season just passed, a very brilliant 2.58. He appeared in 24 ball games. Warren Spahn, appearing in 39 games, had an earned run average of 2.69. This will be the 54th World Series. And for the first time in the history of this colorful classic, the New York Yankees, favorites again in 57, meet for the first time the Milwaukee Braves, who twice in their baseball history have appeared in the Fall Classic. That was back in 1914 when the then Miracle Braves of Boston, Massachusetts moved up from last place after July the 4th to overtake the leaders and win the National League flag and their great momentum of that final splurge carried them through the World Series as they knocked off the Philadelphia Athletics for a world championship. 
Now, the last time the Braves moved into that World Series was 1948. They lost to the Cleveland Indians. Warren Spahn, in that series, had one victory and one defeat. Whitey Ford makes his third World Series start today. Last year, he lost the opener to the Brooklyn Dodgers at colorful Ebbett Field. And the year before, he was victorious in the opening game of the series here at Yankee Stadium. The Yankees were playing in their 23rd World Series in 37 seasons. The Braves would win the series four games to three. The next year, the two teams would meet again, this time with the Yankees taking the series in seven games. Both the Yankees and the Braves clinched their pennants on the same night a week ago last Monday, and they finished strong by finishing eight games in front of the number two ball club. The Yankees had quite a battle in their hand from the Chicago White Sox, and it wasn't until late August, early September, that the Yankees began to show that championship brand that has carried them into eight of the last nine years in uh, pennants. Now, Warren Spahn this afternoon, Whitey Ford, for the New York Yankees, let's look at the starting lineups. For manager Fred Haney, who is making his first appearance in the World Series, it'll be Red Shandings at second base. Johnny Logan at short. Eddie Matthews at third. Henry Aaron in center field. He was the major league leader in home runs with 44. And a runs batted in with 132. Joe Adcock at first base. The veteran right fielder, Andy Pepko. Wes Covington and left. Del Crandall catching. And Warren Spahn, the starter. For the New York Yankees, defending world champions this afternoon, Hank Bauer in right field. Gil McDougal at short. Mickey Mantle starting in center field. Bill Scowron at first base. Yogi Berra, catching. Andy Carey, at third base. Jerry Coleman, at second base. The rookie from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, wearing a Yankee uniform, Tony Kobach, playing that tough left field. And the left-hander, Whitey Ford, is the pitcher. The 1957 World Series is being brought to you from Yankee Stadium in New York. This is John Cameron Swayze with news of a significant advance in the science of writing. In my years of news reporting, I've had many a pen stop writing just when I needed it most. The following day, comedian Artie Arabach, best known for playing Mr. Kitzel on the Jack Benny program, passed away of a heart attack. That same day, the New York Times columnist Jack Gould criticized NBC for attempting to televise the World Series in color. Because of its remarkable lubricating and anti-clogging properties, Papermate's new ink formula with Flojin writes all the time and every time, even on hard-to-write surfaces such as checks, glossy photos, even glass. So get smooth, dependable writing. That style, by the way, has been largely misinterpreted. Everybody said that all the actors spoke in a monotone, and that is not true. What Jack said was, do not project. Don't act. 
Yes, well, well in was, effect, yes, but yeah. acting it in the sense of Be real. projecting a performance. Mm -hmm. You had a great deal of scope in the way you played the character as long as it didn't become too large. Yeah, it, was, it, that it, was it didn't seem he, like And acting. he drove a merciless pace. His TV scripts had about 50% more material in them than the average TV show of the same length. He you was, had to play in the same key that yeah. he played in, or you looked like an absolute ham, you know? Actually, he would deny this, but I believe that he was doing the same thing as the actor's studio, only in radio in those days. I don't think it carried over in the television shows, but I do think in those early days in radio, he was going for absolute truth, and it was right after the war, and people wanted absolute truth. KMA 907, Sacramento Police. Unit 99, are you in the clear? Unit 99 to KMA 907. Unit 99, Sergeant Meredith, 909, in service, on the air. This is Sergeant Dan Meredith of Unit 99 at headquarters, Police Department, City of Sacramento, California. My detail is to ride in Unit 99, our tape recorder-equipped radio car, and to respond whenever the dispatcher transmits a signal to one of our other units on duty somewhere in the city. Unit 99 first aired over ABC's KFBK Sacramento on August 23, 1957. The radio station was part of the McClatchy Media Empire, along with the Sacramento Bee and other radio and TV stations as well as newspapers in the western U.S. This is the standing order to Sergeant Meredith, the officer in charge of Unit 99. Get it on the spot while it's going on. The show was born from Jack Webb's dragnet mode of realistic police portrayals, then furthered by shows like Night Watch, which removed the script, followed actual officers, and made the drama real. Tony Kester directed the show under the auspices of the Sacramento Police Department. It featured Police Chief James B. Hicks as host, and Sergeant Dan Meredith recording his nightly police beat, interviewing witnesses of various crimes and police calls. And Oaks, I just got a 924 to come up to the Detective Bureau. Yes, we have uh, received a call from the Sheriff's Office, and they have a uh, woman over there who claims she was molested today by four men. And uh, she claims she tied up with them this afternoon in a bar in Skid Row. They got in the car and drove out, and they held up someplace. She doesn't know where. She's not familiar with the town. She's only been here a short time. Uh, after they held up this place where they took her out to a house out in the north area and uh, four of them proceeded to rape her, so she says, and uh, she was down in the basement of this place where they attacked her and uh, when she had an opportunity she jumped out the window and ran next door to a neighbor's house and uh, got a hold of the sheriff's office and they in turn uh, contact us due to the fact that we had a robbery this afternoon at the Delta Club. That's on 25th and J? 25th and J. I see you have some mug pictures here. Are these some of the suspects? Yeah, and showing, uh, talking to the girl and uh, uh, showed her a group of mug pictures and she picks out there's three men in this group of pictures that uh, were with her this afternoon according to her. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll have to uh, check further. We're going out now to talk to the victim to show him these pictures to see if he can identify them. No, we'll go with you. Good deal.
that the uh, victim's home, Bill? Uh, yes, this is the address we're looking for. We're going to go on in and talk to the victim, show him the pictures. Looks like nobody's here. I talked to this gentleman on the phone and I repeated the address. He said, yes, it is. There's some paper on the front steps here as if to, nobody's been here for a few days. We're at one of the uh, lower end bars. Oaks just went in to see if he could find this uh, bartender that we're trying to make contact with. Find him, Bill? Um, I'm going to Carly's home. I got his phone number. I'll call his home and see if he's there. Well, he wasn't here. No, he's not here at the bar. You going in the station for that? Yes. Yeah. Bill, did you make contact? No, there's nobody home at the... Uh phone number that I called. But this is uh, getting to be quite a chase. Well, this is the type of business we're in, chasing. Okay. Where are you going now? We're going out into the north area and trying to locate the, the woman's purse that she lost out there and talk to the people. Or where this... And verify the story of the men and the story on her story to us on the attack and... We're out in the north area meeting two sheriff's cars captain munich george munich and one of the patrol cars are out here we're going to line up something in the area where the attack took place and at the hangout of these suspects she claims that she drove the car on the stick up this afternoon <laughs> what time was the stick up four to four four to yeah, 3.45. She said it was 5 or 5.30. Uh, that was the house next door next to the door, one that she jumped out of. 18 18.09, and we picked her up at 18.01. Yeah. She picked out three men out of a group of pictures we had and said they were the men. Well, we know two of them are in Stockton State Hospital. We had it verified the call Stockton. <coughs> The only thing, I you can't discount her story because, no, by God, she... Huh? Not completely. Not completely. That's what I say, because the gal is on the, on the men now. I mean, if this guy picked her up and took her out there, why... Well, uh, I'm, I'm to the place now where I don't believe there's four men and I don't think she was raped. I think what we ought to do is go over there and see if there's a basement. I think... I don't think you can discount it all together because some of the stuff she says is true. I mean, we've checked it's true. One thing that, that makes me believe she's, she comes up with this picture as the guy that... One of the guys was with her. All right, the victim in the robbery, he comes that looks the same guy and says it uh, resembles the guy. He said, that's not him, but he says he's got all these features. Well, I mean, you got, you got a little bit there to hang your hat on. Well, I don't think we can discount it. I think we ought to go over and talk to those people anyhow and see see what... Uh, you want to go with us, George? Sure. I'll go with you. We don't need the boys. No. My name is Ben I'm with the Sheriff's Office, and these are officers from the Sacramento Police Department. 
And we'd like to talk to you about a woman by the name of... Uh, I don't know her name now. She was here, and there was a couple of officers here this evening. I just talked to her. How did she get here? Uh, she came in taxi with uh, Sergeant... Uh, he was, he stayed here, I guess, till... I guess about 9 o'clock, I had a cab come back and pick him up. You're in the service, are you? That's right. Tech sergeant. Okay, now what time did this uh, cab arrive? Uh, in the service? Uh, it was between 4.30 and 5. She come in, uh, and we started playing penny and poker. She had one can of beer. She didn't play it. And then she laid down on the couch. And she had to go to the bathroom, so she went to the bathroom. And she locked the door. So uh, we checked about 15, 20 minutes after she went in there. And the door was locked. So I had to go outside. The screen door, or the screen window was open. So she went in, locked the door, and crawled out window. Then she, and, uh, then, then she went over to the neighbors, I guess, over there. Something. You said he got here about 4.30, 5 o'clock. Huh? Yeah, it was between 4.30 Do you know where five. he met her, did he say? Where? Uh, no, he didn't know. It was some bar downtown. But he didn't know which one. He didn't was. know which bar. No. Did he was say he in uniform time or what time, time he had met No, he was in civilian clothes. Hmm? Did he say he stayed what time he had met her down there? No, he didn't. I don't think he stayed that. Uh, sometime today, though. Maybe afternoon, something like that. And they, uh, he called me, uh, I think it was about... Uh, about 4.15. I, I got home from the field. I got off work at 4 o'clock. I, I get home about 4 o'clock every evening. It's about 4.15, 4.20. He called me. Uh, he said he was coming out. Do you have any children? Uh, uh, no, I don't. Uh, neighbors? Just my wife. Is there any neighbor children here? Yeah, there's two over here, and uh, I believe one on the other side. Here. Do you have what? a basement in this house? No. There's no basement? No, there's no basement. She's given us a fantastic story, and we have to check it out. That's why we in, have yeah. to inconvenience well, here. Well, well I... I Heard that from the two officers was here before this yeah. evening and everything. Something about uh, bank robbers and killing the service station attendant and <laughs> everything else. Well, we got quite a story from her and uh, we have to check them out. Yeah. Just <laughs> I that. Bill, this doesn't look like a place uh, for a hideout or a, a scene of a crime. What do you think? No, it doesn't. Uh, Dan, it's a residential area, and there are nice people live out here. The story that the girl gives us apparently is just a figment of her imagination more than anything else. Are you going back in the station now and have another talk with her? Yes, we're going to talk to her again as soon as we get into the station, as soon as we can leave here. And we'll also try and contact the bartender that... Uh, was in one of the bars that she was supposed to have been in. We're back to the detective bureau. I'm going to talk to the young lady a little further. Well, we were out to 
tonight's section on Don't talk to those people. We were at the house in which you were attacked by these four men. There was no basement in that house. We saw where you went out the bathroom window. We know that you went out the bathroom window because they told us that you went out the bathroom window. We were at the house next door and talked to the people there. And she said that you didn't come in the house and that you asked her to call the police, which she did. Now, who was the sergeant that you went out there with in the cab? Is that what they told you? Well, they were there. Unit 99 ran until June 13, 1958. And there's no, I think somebody is, and I think it's you. No, I'm not giving you And the woman out there at that particular house that you're supposed to have been raped by these four men does not have any children. intensive work by research institutes and designing bureaus, the first artificial Earth satellite in the world has now been created. This first satellite was today successfully launched in the USSR. On Friday, October 4th, 1957, the U.S. received confirmation of the USSR's launch of Sputnik 1, the first artificial Earth orbiting satellite. It was a polished metal sphere, 23 inches in diameter, with four external radio antennas to broadcast radio pulses. Its radio signal was easily detectable by amateur radio operators. Its 65-degree orbital inclination gave it a flight path that completely covered all parts of the inhabited Earth. While traveling at peak speed, the satellite took 96.20 minutes to complete each orbit. It transmitted on a bandwidth of roughly 20 and 40 megahertz. These signals were monitored throughout the world and continued for 21 days until the transmitter's batteries died on October 26th. The satellite's success was unanticipated by the U.S., setting the space race into orbit as part of the Cold War. That same day, Bing Crosby signed on with the Ford Roadshow for five minutes over CBS, announced by Ken Carpenter. To get a job as a staff announcer for NBC, we've heard many stories about the announcer's test that they had. Did you have to go through all of that? or had Well, uh, not when I got my job at NBC, uh -huh. no. They uh, just opened up down here. And, well, by that time, I had some reputation mm -hmm. because I did four Rose Bowl games on radio in 1934, 5, and 6. Mm -hmm. Those were released over NBC, of course, so I had a certain amount of reputation. Started doing some network shows when they first started originating network shows, commercial shows, from NBC out here. I won some auditions on those, of course, mm -hmm. but not as a staff. No, I didn't have to, because my, my name was fairly well known at uh, that uh, time. The Ford Roadshow, starring Bing Crosby. You're ahead in a Ford all the way. Brought to you by Ford, the car that saves you most per mile. Folks, I have a selection here now. It's called uh, Don't Get Around Much Anymore. 
I'd like to quickly, though, uh, put in a disclaimer that this certainly doesn't apply to my own personal life. I get around a lot because I got a new Ford. I miss the Saturday dance. Heard they crowded the floor. I couldn't bear it without you. The next Wednesday, October 9th, the Lovell Telescope was activated in Cheshire, England while a Boeing B-47 Stratajet bomber crashed in Orlando, Florida, killing all four military officers on board. On October 10th, a nuclear reactor fire on the northwest coast of England released radioactive material into the air. As President Eisenhower hosted breakfast at the White House with Ghani's minister to France, Komla Akbeli Bedema, who'd been recently refused at a Howard Johnson's in Delaware because of his race. The next day, an IBM computer at MIT Computation Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts, calculated the last stage of the R-7 Semyorka rocket that carried Sputnik 1. And on Saturday, October 12th, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, arrived in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, for a royal visit. The Queen opened the Canadian Parliament on the 14th, the first monarch to do so. I just can't handle the action like I used to, no. Hey, Mumbles, what, what's the pitch? <laughs> you shouldn't mumble like that. It gives you away. They say folks who talk to themselves have got money in the bank. Oh, no, that can't be true, Mick. But I'm glad you brought up the subject of money. I was, um, I was adding up miles per gallon I got on my last trip in my Ford, and that means money to me. What the result did you achieve? Oh, keen bang. You won't believe it. Oh, I... Going to believe it, I bet I will. Didn't Ford six top all cars in miles per gallon in the mobile gas economy run? Right. And uh, Fords don't just cost less to run. You know what a guy offered me for my for the other day? Well, you're not going to surprise me, Ken. My friends in the industry tell me that according to this year's car auction figures, Fords have been bringing more in trade than any other low-priced car. That's oh, what they told me. Maybe this will surprise you, Bing. Ford's big car value costs less to buy than any other car in its class. The merest child knows that. This can't be love Because I feel so well No sobs, no sorrows, no sighs This can't be love I get no dizzy spells My head is not in the sky. My heart does not stand still Just hear it beat This is too sweet to be love This can't be love Because I feel so well Still I love to look in your eyes Oh, how I love to look in your eyes We're never going to run out of moon songs. It'll always be moon, june, spoon songs. We've got a recent entry now, a new song called Dark Moon. Dark moon, away 
up high, up in the sky. Oh, tell me why, oh, tell me why you lost your splendor. Dark moon, what is the cause your light withdraws? Is it because, is it because I've lost my love? Mortals have dreams of love's perfect schemes, but they don't realize that love will sometimes bring a dark moon. All way up high, up in the sky, oh, tell me why, oh, tell me why you Lost your splendor, dark moon. What is the cause your light withdraws? Is it because, is it because I've lost my love? Well, Ken, assume a recumbent position on my chaise lounge there and tell me what it is. Uh, how do you convince folks that uh, Ford really does cost less to buy? Show them the manufacturer's suggested list prices. It shows Ford's the lowest price car of the low price three. That sounds good. But I want to prove that Ford uh, costs less to run, too. Well, then you tell them uh, about the mobile gas economy run. Seems to me that Ford 6 really beat the other's hands down in miles per gallon. That's true. Ford did average the most miles per gallon of any car, regardless of weight or size. That's good. That's good. Ah, uh, but here's the clincher. How do I prove that Fords bring more at trade-in time? Well, that's no serious problem. A look at Ford's years ahead sculptured style and built-for-keeps inner Ford tells you that the new kind of Ford is going to be worth plenty in trade for a good long while. Well, if this year's any indication, Bing, you're right. Ford is America's best-selling car. No problem, Ken. Like I told you, this new kind of Ford sells itself. I don't want you, but I hate to lose you. You've got me in between the devil and the deep blue sea. I forgive you, cause I can't forget you You've got me in between the devil and the deep blue sea I'd ought to cross you off my list But when you come knocking at my door Fate seems to give my heart a twist I come running back for more I should hate you, but I guess I love you You've got me in between the devil and the deep blue sea Well, that's all for now. Then thank you very much. The Ford Road Show, starring Bing Crosby with Buddy Cole's music, has been brought to you by Ford, the car that saves you most per mile. You're ahead in a Ford all the way. Listen for the other Ford Road Shows with the World News Roundup, Rosemary Clooney, Arthur Godfrey, and Edward R. Murrow. CBS Radio Network.
right now. Experience New York City like you've never before. The speculation is out of control. Yes, sir. The whole Will you make the right deal? Memories are short in New York. If you don't make a fortune, someone else will. I know you've been bringing rosemary into port illegally. I have eyes and ears and noses and <laughs> tongues everywhere. Or fall to greed. If I was caught with diamonds at any time, any time, my sister and I would have been gang raped and murdered. I do this for you. Look at what we got here, bricked up. Looks like we caught as a dandy and a whore all alone on South Street with nowhere to hide. Ain't that right, boys? But whatever you choose. There's a choice. You just always make the same choice, the one for yourself. Just make sure you get out in time. Lord, have mercy on us soul. Out now on your favorite podcast app. Burning Gotham, the 2022 Tribeca Select audio soap opera about the fastest growing city in the world and the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, go to burninggotham.com. October 1944, in conjunction with the Jewish Theological Seminary, NBC began broadcasting one of the longest-running religious programs in radio history. It was called The Eternal Light. Then, in its 13th year, The Eternal Light dramatized stories from ancient Judea, along with contemporary works like The Diary of Anne Frank. It was produced by Milton Krentz. Many top New York radio actors appeared. NBC donated the airtime and the seminary paid for the show's production. On Sunday, October 13, 1957, at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time over NBC's WRCA in New York, the eternal light took to the air with a story on the Glastonbury cows. The Boston Tea Party, the battles of Concord and Lexington, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the birth of the Constitution, Place next to these, unblushingly, in the archives of freedom in the annals of liberty, the case of the Glastonbury cows.
This is a true story about two spinster ladies, a book, a small New England town, and seven extraordinary cows. The ladies' names were Julia Evelina Smith and Abby Hadassah Smith. The book is the book of books, the Holy Bible. The town was Glastonbury, Connecticut. Each of these seven cows also had a name, but we'll save that for later in the story. To understand the case of the Glastonbury cows at all, you have to know something about the ladies who owned them. Neither Miss Abby nor Miss Julia were exactly retiring types. As a matter of fact, Miss Abby was thought by some of the Glastonbury folks to be rather a talkative person, especially talkative about her family. With the Bible. Nobody couldn't forget the Bible in our house. Not for a minute. Now, you just take the names. Mother's name was Hannah Hadassah Hiccup. Father's was Zephaniah Smith. I suppose you know who Zephaniah was. If memory serves me right, he was the son of Cushing. Abby Hadassah Smith uh, was a bit talkative, I suppose, much more talkative than her sister, Julia. If it had been up to Julia, possibly no one would even know about the case of the Glastonbury cows. Now, don't you go saying a thing against Julia. Why, Julia was my support and help all through. Julia may be quiet, but when she puts her mind to something, she stays with it. Well, for once, Miss Abby is understating the fact. Uh, Miss Julia, for example, spent nine years translating the entire Bible from the original Hebrew. Why? Well, Julia allowed is the English version that rested on our parlor bookshelf wasn't completely accurate. What else was there for her to do but make her own translation? Glastonbury, Connecticut in 1869, tax collectors asked two elderly sisters, Abby and Julia Smith, to pay their road taxes early. They did, but were surprised to find the town accidentally billed them a second time later in the year. The Smiths were wealthy. Their father left his daughters a large land holding, investments, and a farm. Their mother left them a sizable inheritance as well. When the sisters asked the town to correct the matter, the tax collector refused. When they tried to enter a town meeting to raise the issue, they were turned away because they were women. The frustrated sisters paid the tax a second time, but their lack of political power infuriated them. They began attending women's suffragette rallies. As their frustration grew, so did their taxes. In 1874, they were told they could not delay their taxes in exchange for a 12% interest charge, a courtesy afforded other taxpayers. They became convinced that modern women needed a vote and decided to stop paying taxes until they could. The tax collector seized seven cows to pay off back taxes. The sisters used a straw buyer to retrieve most of them, sparking much written debate. Critics who compared them to children only made their supporters more united. The cows became celebrities. Knickknacks woven out of their hair sold like hotcakes at fundraising bazaars that promoted women's suffrage. Julia published a book, Abby Smith and Her Cows. This seizing continued through 1878. Eventually, the sisters testified before Congress. In 1878, at the age of 81, Abby died in July. The next year, Julia, age 87, decided to marry for the first time. Her husband began paying the taxes on her property, and she repaid him in a compromise of love. 
The case of the Glastonbury cows really began on a brisk morning in November 1873. Now, if, as we review the facts, we find Miss Abby somewhat loquacious, perhaps we can forgive her on the basis of youth. She was much younger than her sister Julia. Abby was only 77. Julia was 82. It was Miss Abby who opened the door of the trim white homestead in which the sisters lived on that fateful morning in the year 1873. Well, good morning, Mr. Andrews. We've been expecting you. Morning, Miss Abby. Julia! Julia, it's Mr. Andrews come visiting on his annual chore. Please to come into the parlor, Mr. Andrews. Well, thank you, Miss Abby. The mornings are growing chill, to be sure. Though, I don't know as you're going to welcome the news I've brought. Mr. Andrews, no one rightly welcomes the tax collector's news. Still, there's no reason to be inhospitable. Julia, fetch a cup of hot cocoa for Mr. Andrews. He looks a bit shivery. Poured it already. Morning, Mr. Andrews. Uh, Drink it. You do look chilled. Thank you, Miss Julia. Brought some bran muffins, too. Oh, I thank you. Pity I can't repay your kindness. Mr. Andrews, I told you already we're prepared for your annual visit. My sister and I have our tax money put aside. You needn't be hesitant about asking for it. Gracious, we've paid taxes every November for the past 40 years to you and Mr. Corbett before you. give him a chance to say his piece. To say his piece? Why, what would... I do believe he's trying to tell us something. Yes, I am, Miss Julia. Well, then say it, Mr. Andrews. Well, uh... Well, what, Mr. Andrews? Well, Miss Abby, it's that I have to ask you for more than I did last year. For more? Has the town council raised the tax? No, ma'am, but... Then why must you ask for more? Well, they've reassessed your property, Miss Abby. That's odd. Hadn't heard of any general reassessment? No, no, the... There hasn't been any general reassessment, Miss Julia. No general reassessment? No, ma'am. George Andrews, you mean to sit there and tell us only our property's been reappraised? Well, no, no, not exactly. Yours, Miss Abby, and... uh, uh, And what, Mr. Andrews? Don't fear to talk. Yours and the property of Widow Merton... uh, And that's all? And the property of Widow Baker. No one else's? Just our land and the land of two widows? Yes, yes, Miss Julia. It's only a small rise in the tax, Miss Julia, a very small rise. I don't care if it's a penny's rise, Mr. Andrew, do you, Abby? Certainly not. We won't pay it. You won't pay it? That's right. We won't pay it, Mr. Andrews. Not one cent. But, Miss Abby, it's the law. The town council has reappraised your land. That's all there is to it. That's not all there is to it by any means, Mr. Andrews. This is a question of justice. Of justice, of course. That's exactly the word. What's unjust about it? I don't recollect you're getting so riled up ever before about paying your tax. It's not the tax, Mr. Andrews. It's the principle. What you've just told us, not one acre of land in the whole township owned by a man has risen in value. I can't help that, Miss Abby. All I can do is to collect your tax. You'll admit it's an extraordinary coincidence, Mr. Andrews. What, what is, Miss Julia? My sister means it's an extraordinary coincidence that the town council, made up only of men, voted into office only by men, 
should discover values of land have risen only for women, especially women without menfolk who can talk for them. Now you can just go back to that town council and tell them that Miss Abby Hadassah Smith and Miss Julia Evelina Smith will not pay an unjust tax. You can tell them to read their Bibles a bit, too. Their Bibles? What's that got to do with it, Miss Julia? Tell them to read the first chapter of Genesis. I can't tell the town council what to read, Miss Julia. I'm only the tax collector. You tell them anyway. Tell them the Lord created all men equal. Tell them my sister and I are just sure he meant all men and all women, too. You care to have another muffin, Mr. Andrews? In the year 1873, the town council of Glastonbury, Connecticut, was not precisely accustomed to being advised by women not even by the Smith sisters, who were known generally for their independence of spirit and their reservoir of learning. The chairman of the council received the tax collector's report, therefore, with great equanimity. Oh, what? What's that they said, Andrews? Uh, they said for the council to read the first chapter of Genesis. I have never... In all my years, I... Well, I'm I'm just saying the words as they said them to me. Never mind what they said to you. You listen to what I'm saying to you. Yes, sir. You've got my ear. Oh, hang your ear. You're Glastonbury's tax collector, aren't you? No, I'm telling you to collect the tax. And another thing, Andrews. Sir? You might tell Miss Abby and Miss Julia that the town council can continue to function without their advice as to Bible reading. George Andrews, the tax collector, returned to the Smith homestead and delivered the chairman's message. This time, Miss Abby suggested another reading for the council. If they're too stubborn to open the good book, tell them to read the Declaration of Independence. Tell them taxation without representation is what our forefathers fought the British about almost a hundred years ago. Miss Julia, the quiet one, had a simpler suggestion. Abby. Yes, Julia. Better still. Let's tell them ourselves. In the year 1873, women did not attend town meetings in Glastonbury, Connecticut. Women did not vote. Women were represented in the town council by their male relatives. Women never, never spoke at town meetings or requested the right to do so. Mr. Chairman! Gentlemen, gentlemen, let us have order. Please, let us have order. You, Miss Abby, you are out of order. Completely and irrevocably out of order. Mr. Chairman, something else is out of order if I don't have the right to speak. Miss Abby, it is simply not the custom for ladies to attend town meetings. And I do believe the time's come to alter the custom, Mr. Chairman. Well, now, just one minute, Miss Abby, we have no wish to quarrel with you. We would appreciate it if you'd sit down. This town meeting has much business to transact. What business is more important than the business of justice? Miss Abby, is there no way to reason with you? Reason? Is it reasonable that I shouldn't be heard? 
It's not as if I had a son or brother or father to speak for me. It's not without due deliberation that we've been willing to attend this meeting. We had no other way of coming before the men of the town. Let her speak, John. We needn't necessarily listen. <laughs> All right. All right, Miss Abby. In respect for your age, I... I'll not speak on the grounds of my age. Besides which, John, I consider it's ungallant of you to mention it. Miss Abby, speak on any grounds you will. Very well. I'll speak on the grounds of justice. We'd appreciate it if you'd speak briefly on whatever grounds. You know, that's a bit hard for you. <laughs> hard or not, I'll be brief. It's not ten years since we fought a war to emancipate the slave. What's that to do with taxes, Miss Abby? It's everything to do with taxes and with freedom. Now, what's the motto of our government? Proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. All. That's from Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10. Miss Abby... You and your sisters have a peculiar propensity to teach this town council the scriptures. We didn't ask for a Bible lesson. It's as much a freedom lesson as a Bible lesson, John, as you'd know if you'd listen. All my sister Julia and I say is that liberty should be proclaimed for all the inhabitants of Glastonbury. As it is one half of the inhabitants, the men rule over the other half, the women, who aren't put under the law. Miss Abby, I don't believe you're talking to the point. The point is, will you or won't you pay your rise in taxes? It's what I'm trying to tell you, all of you. We came here, Julia and I, because you raised our taxes. Ours and two widows. If you hadn't raised our taxes, we might never have thought about it. About what, Miss Abby? About... How we have no voice in saying how our taxes are used. But now we've thought about it. Shall we not stand on an equality with every man in this assembly before the law of God? God is a God of justice. Men and women stand alike in his sight. Miss Abby, I didn't give you the floor to make a speech for women's suffrage. If you have anything further to say about the tax that's due, please say it. All right, I'll say it. Miss Julia and I won't pay the rise in taxes. That is your last word? Your very last word? Not quite. Miss Julia and I won't pay any taxes at all. Not till we have any... The town. Smith sisters returned to their quiet white farmhouse with the dark green shutters and took up the placid routine of their daily lives. Although many radio programs were canceled, the eternal light would air on radio and then television until 1989. Only one thing had changed. They paid no taxes whatsoever. In those days, after every program, you gave your name. Mm -hmm. You are listening to Morning Melodies, your announcer, Andre Barouche. You are listening, you have listened to whatever, you know, your announcer, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And you did that five, six, seven times a day. 
six, seven days a week. As a result, your name went out over the air, over a national network, constantly, for years on end. And people got to know your name. Today, the announcer is anonymous. And he makes more money. Because he can do a lot of things. <laughs> Commercials, well, as an example. You can spot me on a commercial like that. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot of them, but not nearly as many if my voice and style were not so distinctive. Algeria aflame. Algeria, a country aflame with the only shooting war in the world. Algeria, strategically dominating the southern shores of the Mediterranean. Algeria, where for every Frenchman there are nine Muslims. Algeria, three times the size of France, four times the size of Texas. Algeria, where 400,000 French troops are pinned down by 25,000 rebels. Algeria, a country of flame with revolution. In October of 1957, Algeria was in the midst of a war for independence and control between France and the Algerian National Liberation Front. The conflict began in November of 1954, and by October of 1957 was considered the world's only active war of note. It was a complex conflict characterized by guerrilla warfare and the use of torture. When the war finally came to an end in 1962, with France granting Algeria independence, 900,000 Algerian refugees fled to France in fear of the NLF taking revenge on them for siding with France. The majority of Algerian Muslims who had worked for the French were left behind. Algerian authorities promised France they'd take no action against them. However, these Algerian Muslims were branded as traitors, and many were soon murdered. On October 14, 1957, at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time, CBS Radio broadcast a documentary on the first three years of the conflict called Algeria Aflame. This is Blair Clark. That song you hear is an Algerian song sung by rebels in the mountains near the Tunisian border. It sings of freedom, of love for the land, of hatred for the French, of the age-old dream of independence. The men who sing it are soldiers of the Algerian Liberation Army, who are called by the French rebels. They sing this song of Algeria in a lull in their war with the French, a guerrilla war that has now gone on for three years and is getting more and more bitter on both sides. They are outnumbered at least 10 to 1, yet they go on fighting. This is a war, all right, but its name is Stalemate. This is David Schoengren reporting from an airstrip in the Algerian hills near the Tunisian frontier, deep in rebel territory. A Piper Cub is taking off to hunt for rebel bands hiding in these hills. In one of the strangest wars I've ever covered, it's a kind of a giant fox hunt. In military terms, casualties here are very small. There's little direct compact. 
fact, there are less deaths and injuries here in one month than back in France in one weekend on the highway. The French army is powerful, yet it's impotent, for it can't come to grips with an elusive enemy. It knows the population helps or is forced to help the rebels, but the people must be treated as friendly for political reasons. Yet this army can't understand the politics of Paris or of its allies. The army never wanted to fight this kind of war, yet there's no way out of it in the absence of a political settlement, and there's no settlement in sight, so here in Algeria, the hunt goes on. The aim of the rebels, or nationalists, ever since the first small bands took to the hills on All Saints Day, November 1st, 1954, has been nothing less than independence, nationhood for Algeria. This small revolt, which has become a war, was from the start a fight against second-class French citizenship by the nine million Muslims of Algeria, a land that is legally a part of France, a land whose destiny is decided in France by the French, not in Algeria by the Algerians. It was a struggle at first by a few, but now by many, for freedom, for self-determination. A few weeks ago, CBS News correspondent Frank Kearns, whose post is in Cairo, made contact with leaders of the Algerian Liberation Front, the FLN. His assignment, go with the FLN up into the hills of Algeria and report on what he saw. His mission, to find out what kind of an army the nationalists had, how it was armed, how it fought, what was its morale and its chances. Reporter Kearns went to Tunis and prepared for his journey into rebel territory in French Algeria. With him, he took a portable tape recorder and every day he recorded a diary of what he saw and heard with the rebels inside Algeria. There were many delays, but at last came the order to start. We finally start marching down a dirt road toward Algeria. Several times we hit the dirt as a curious plane flies overhead till the sergeant in command chooses the hard way up over the hills. Legs accustomed to elevators and taxis suddenly ache in pain. The heart pounds harder and harder. But worst of all is the breathing. With each step up the steep mountainside, each breath is agony, has to be pulled up from somewhere down around the ankles, rattles like that of a dying person. Any fear of the French disappears completely. In fact, all thoughts and emotions are wiped out by the supreme effort to take another breath, another step. Above all, I am afraid, horribly afraid of collapsing, of losing face. But somehow the feet and legs and lungs keep working. Up and up as the going gets rougher, as dusk, then darkness settles over the mountains. The air is cool, even cold, but our clothes are still soaked and perspiration drips from our faces. Then, just as collapse seems inevitable, we come to a halt on a mountaintop. We all sink to the ground without a word, without question. I sprawl like a man staked out, unable to move even if the entire French army attacks. For Kearns and his rebel escort, the going was tough mostly at night over rugged terrain. French troops on the lookout, sometimes from a distance of just a grenade's throw. In the short rest periods as they climbed up and up into the hills, Kearns recorded his diary. As they moved west, they encountered refugees heading east to the safety of Tunisia, ragged byproducts of the war. The Algerian nationalists say there are at least 200,000 refugees in Tunisia, almost as many in Morocco. After a week inside Algeria, a week of living with the nationalists in the hills and sharing their dangers, reporter Kearns felt he knew something about their military organization, 
what kind of an army they had. The French picture these men abroad as bands of outlaws, as bandits. But here on the spot, it's obvious they are soldiers, part of a well-organized, well-disciplined army. The majority are veterans of the French army itself, veterans of World War II and Indochina. They're young, mostly in their 20s. The official age brackets are between 18 and 35. Young because it takes young men to fight this tough mountain guerrilla war. The Algerians have no planes like the French, no American B-26s, P-38s, Piper Cubs. They have no artillery, no American 105s and 155s. Their biggest weapon is a mortar. No jeeps, no trucks, no half-tracks, only mules. They're outnumbered, out-equipped, anywhere from 5 to 10 to 1. Yet we've never heard a single solitary Algerian soldier use the phrase, if we win. It's always after the war, après la guerre. Kearns had now been inside Algeria with the rebels for two weeks. He described the operations of one company in one area. Before the trouble, this area had about 4,000 people, mostly farmers. The Algerians say their official records show that 374 persons have been killed here by the French, almost all civilians, mostly women and children. Others have been interned or have gone away, wandering through the mountains. Only about 1,000 are left. There are some 6,500 French troops in this region, yet the ALN company here attacks without let-up. Two sections, 36 men, are specialists in sabotage. The train from Algiers to Tunisia, usually a troop train or carrying French military supplies, is attacked regularly. The lieutenant in charge of this work, a tall, deceptively mild-mannered and soft-spoken man, says casually that his men sabotage the trains once a week and that it takes the French two or three days to repair the damage each time. Also, the saboteurs regularly topple electric high-tension poles or pylons. Reporter Kearns naturally formed views from what he saw in a month with the Algerian nationalists inside Algeria. He gave us his conclusions. The French may claim all this is a strictly internal affair, but the bulk of her war machine in Algeria is furnished by America, diverted from the international effort known as NATO. The refugees pouring into Tunisia and Morocco are fast becoming an international problem which soon may become as big and difficult and tragic as the Palestine refugee problem. All the countries giving aid to Algeria lend further international color to the Algerian problem. And the communist offer of arms, more and more tempting to Algerians hungry for arms, Algerians fighting Indian style against a jet-age army, looms more and more ominous in the background. In brief, the Algerian war, and it is a war, has been going on almost three years now. Neither side is giving an inch or gaining an inch. Neither side will accept any kind of compromise. Neither side will give the other a way out. So let's have a nice big hand now for Stan. Stan Kruger. I have the, um, the dubious distinction of uh, having been the last network radio comedian in America. 
big deal. Right? <laughs> when my CBS uh, show went off in uh, 1957, you can see what tremendous good those write-ups did me, right? <laughs> I carried a lot of weight upstairs at CBS radio. <laughs> anyway, but I managed to uh, stay on for about 17 weeks there. And when that show ended, why, they disbanded the staff orchestra. They had an, actually had a staff band at CBS until then. They kept holding out, you know, hoping that radio would give them something to do. But that was the last, literally, the last network comedy show that emanated from coast to coast. Had been nothing coming out of New York for a long time. I think uh, Meet Millie and the, uh, I guess it was the Bing Crosby radio show. He had a daily show or something. They bit the dust, and then there was just me, and that was it. I thought that was the end. Little did I know the end would really occur one day in Reseda. <laughs> uh, certainly the, the lower end of some sort of broadcasting spectrum, appearing in front of a spurred vac group in a, an abandoned Reseda church. <laughs> Stan Freeberg was born on August 7, 1926 in Pasadena, California. Shortly after graduating from high school, he found work as a voice actor in both radio and animation. I've always been fascinated by uh, sound patterns. I was born, I guess, what, 15 years too late or something, to really have functioned in radio the way I wanted to when I was 14 years old. My uncle uh, worked at CBS as a guard in the master control that was back in the, that was three wars ago. Right, counting the Korean War. Yeah. World War II, we called it then. They were afraid the Japs were going to come and bomb the, uh, you know, take over the, not bomb, but take over the communications right away. So he, he hid in there all night long, you know, with a 38 trembling. And uh, <laughs> in the master control, he used to bring me home uh, scripts from the wastebaskets of all the studios, which is when I used to go out in the garage, hold my ear, and uh, practice voices and imitations of all the, my you know, idols in radio. So by the time I got to actually working around radio, I was about 17. I had, I had about three years rehearsing in the garage. If I had been in radio in the 40s, uh, I think I probably would have used sound effects and sound patterns more than anybody that I can recall. The only uh, man that I can recall really utilizing sound to his greatest advantage was Arch Obler on a show called Lights Out. That was just an incredible thing. I remember the, uh, the chicken heart. Did you ever hear that? Yeah. Right, yeah, boy, great. In 1957, now 31, he was given his own 30-minute comedy program on CBS, Sundays at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time from Hollywood. It debuted on July 14, 1957. The cast featured Peter Leeds, June Foray, Dawes Butler, Marvin Miller, with vocalist Peggy Taylor, Billy May's orchestra, and the Judd Conlon rhythm airs. His comedic style was biting. He was a shrewd satirist who targeted mediocrity, complacency, and stuffed shirts. He specialized in lampooning American life. On his first show, he ripped American capitalism with a long skit about two competing Las Vegas nightclubs, the El Sodom and Rancho Gamora, set in the near future. They really didn't understand that too much upstairs there. CBS. The first show uh, 
that I did was probably the most bitingly satiric one, and it, it was a satire on Las Vegas, and it was called Incident at Los Verosis. It took about 18 minutes of the first 30. The CBS higher-ups didn't get it. So they booked the next best thing. They booked, the only thing they could think of at the top of the other hotel was they booked the hydrogen bomb for one night only. And, uh, and that was the end of the, uh, the city. And the people at CBS were really appalled that I would do that. They said the, booking the Gaza Strip in is anti-Semitic, first of all. And they said, would you change the Gaza Strip? Disguise it. Use a fictitious strip. Said to me. <laughs> a well-known Mideastern strip of land. You know. They wanted me to uh, change the... Um, well, they wouldn't let it on the air unless they took out the hydrogen bomb. So I, they made me put an earthquake in. Right. When, after the show went off, I had the original, I had to come back and redo the whole show, have a new audience come in, redo the whole thing. It was like 48 hours before it went on. When I went to put the Capitol album out, I simply went back and took the original tapes and cut the, those parts back in and it worked fine. And nobody, I never got a single postcard from anybody saying, hey, what do you, that's an anti-Semitic thing you did, or what do you mean the hydrogen bomb? They're really weird at networks. They somehow, they think uh, by mentioning the hydrogen bomb, everybody's gonna get upset. And by not mentioning it, they will go away, perhaps. Okay to mention it in the news, by the way, but not in the entertainment portions of the program. I could write a long book about network and record company, too, censorship. So he destroyed Lawrence Welk in a skit that became known as Wonderful, Wonderful. Billy May's orchestra played a Welkian arrangement of Bubbles in the Wine, while Freeberg, doing a credible Welk imitation, kept yelling, Turn off that bubble machine! until he was drowned in the foam. Freeberg interviewed the abominable snowman, presented a group of musical sheep, and staged a western skit, Bang Gunley, U.S. Marshall Fields, spoofing the overdone sound effects of many classic films. He attacked censorship, with Freeberg attempting to sing Kern and Hammerstein's Old Man River, only to be stopped by a Citizens Committee censor, who sounded a buzzer at any line he found objectionable, leading to rewriting the lyrics as Elderly Man River. In August, Sponsor Magazine reported that CBS thought the network radio could see a return to sponsors buying full programs that fall. CBS was pitching the Stan Freeberg show for $10,000 per week. However, by October, it was obvious that network comedy couldn't return to its previous highs, and the Stan Freeberg show was canceled after the October 20th episode. This is the 15th show of the series of the Calm Down Radio series. From Hollywood, we present the Stan Freeberg Show. With the music of Billy Mann. Plus the songs of Peggy Taylor, Joss Butler, June Parade, Peter Leeds, and Dutch Conlon Rhythmers. You may well find us on your TV, because in case you did not know, we're bidding on farewell to... On farewell to, on farewell to R-A-D-I-O. Good evening. 
Well, welcome to the 15th and last in this series of Sunday evening radio shows. In answer to your many requests, and by the way, we are really deeply grateful, all of us, for the enormous response, we're going to recreate for you tonight some of the things you told us that you enjoyed the most. Well, I'm certainly going to miss our little Sunday evening romp together. The thing that made it fun was never knowing quite what was going to happen, you know. I'm going to miss talking to those real-life, believable people, for example, who used to come knocking at our portals. Ah, a guest bids entrance. Mr. Freeberg? <laughs> yes? I'd like to discuss a problem with you. Yes, indeed, a problem with you! <laughs> well, if you just come down off the wall, we'll talk about <laughs> with my car. I can't get through on Sunset Boulevard. Well, what seems to be the trouble? The road is being blocked by sheep. Yes, indeed, being blocked by sheep. <laughs> <laughs> that must be... I mean, that must be uh, Monsieur uh, Toulet and his tuned sheep. I don't care what they are. I've got to get to work. Yes, indeed, back to work. <laughs> What kind of work do you do? Brain surgery! If I ever need any brain surgery, why, I'll be sure and get in touch with that uh, uh, gentleman. There. Pardon me, Mr. Freeberg. Uh, my name is Tweedley. Well, we all have our problems. <laughs> I am the censor from the Citizens Radio Committee, and I must okay all the material used on your program here. So I'll just sit back here and interrupt whenever I feel it necessary. You mean you plan to stop me every time I do something that you think is wrong? Exactly. I'll just sound my little horn like this. And that's a darling little horn there. <laughs> and then you stop, and I'll tell you what's wrong. Somehow I can tell it's going to be one of those days. You just go right ahead, Mr. Freeberg. Don't mind me. Yeah. And now I would like to sing... The... You forgot to say thank you, Mr. Freeberg. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Freeberg. Uh, Mr. Tweedy. You're welcome, I am sure. Yes. I'd like to sing an old river song in honor this week of National Treat to Beat Your Feet on the Mississippi Mud Week. <laughs> Mr. May, if you please. That was very polite, Mr. Freeberg. Old Man River all right, Tweedley, politeness I dig, but what in the world is wrong with Old Man River? Well, the word old has a connotation some of the more elderly people find distasteful. <laughs> I would suggest you make the substitution, please. I suppose you insist? Precisely. You may continue. All right, music. You forgot Got to, to say, say thank, thank you. you. Yes. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Elderly man, river, that elderly man, river, he must know something, but he don't say nothing. Grammar, grammar. That's all right, Billy, music. Yes, thank you, thank you. You're welcome, I'm sure. I somehow uh, ran into a uh, series of uh, motion picture actors that I was using in radio commercials and uh, I discovered that they really knew very little about this type of microphone, how to use this kind of mic. 
because they had not been in radio years before. I just sort of assumed that, uh, you know, wrongly assumed that most actors, even if they're motion picture actors, somehow it works in another medium like radio. Wrong. This guy Charles Lane is a you know a crabby old guy. He was the previous guy that I'd had, and uh, you know the man would uh, <clears throat> he'd mumble down the thing like this, you know, and he'd say, "I tell you, I'm gonna tell you." Charlie, you got to stay in the mic here. He says, oh, can't they follow me? You know. And he's used to these big, uh, those big ball mics on the booms, you know, that reel out and follow you wherever you go, right? So I had to explain, no, no, you got this thing like this, you got to stay right here. This is a dead side here, right? So the guy, he, he finally, you know, we almost handcuffed him to the mic. And uh, we made the commercial. Okay, uh, about two weeks later, Everett Sloan, the late Everett Sloan came in, and I thought, I had just seen him as Citizen Kane. I had no idea the man had been a radio actor years before, but I didn't know this, right? So I think, oh, geez, another motion picture actor. I said, okay, uh, look, Everett, this is a radio mic. It's a little different than uh, using uh, motion pictures. He said, mm-hmm. I said, this is what we call it. It's a 44, it's an RCA 44B mic. Now, this is dead over here. He says, is that right? I said, that's right, yeah. yeah this is a dead side here. Dead side. He said, don't, so don't go talking like this, and don't walk away like this. He said, I'll try and remember that, yes. Because we can't follow you around. He said, no, I know that. I said, okay, well, just checking, okay. And I said, look, here, you kind of stay in like this, see, right in this area right here. And if you hit a P, you got to go pop like that to the side right now. He was very, very gracious. So the guy did this magnificent job, you know, working this mic. When it got loud, he backed up. And I thought, boy, this guy's a natural, you know. So I came out, I said, boy, you're a natural. You're a radio natural. That's terrific, Everett. You know, you'd think you'd have done this before. And this very sweet, gracious man said to me, well, actually, uh, Stan, um, I have done this uh, before. I said, really, you have worked in radio? Yes, I have, yes. I said, what uh, radio programs did you do, Everett? And he said to me, well, uh, I was with Orson. I said, Orson, uh, well, uh, well, that's right, yes. And I said, you mean with the Mercuries is the Mercury players, that's right. I said, you mean you did uh, the War of the Worlds yeah. and all those following? Mm-hmm. He said, yes, I Joe Cotton and uh, Agnes Moorhead and uh, myself. Uh, I was with them. I said, you did quite a few of those uh, with Orson, did you? He said, all of them. I said, oh, well, that, well, that would explain probably uh, your... Uh, what have you uh, picked to sing for us tonight? Well, I'd like to sing The Birth of the Blues. Well, we'd love to listen to you. different tune, one that they could croon as only they can. They heard the breeze in the trees singing weird melodies, and they made that as the start of the Downhearted, frail, and they made that 
wonderful. Thank you, Peggy. That was lovely. Well, you seem to enjoy our version recently of that typical soundtrack that has come galloping out of your TV sets this fall. So here, then, is our Western hero, Bang Gunley. Now, that is just the soundtrack. No peeking at the picture now. <laughs> Corporation of America presents Bang Gunley, U.S. Marshal Field. through that fence all right. Yep. <laughs> Somebody sure cut through that fence all right. Back to our action-packed story in just a moment, folks. <laughs> but first, a word from the newest member of the Eating Corporation of America's breakfast family, Puffed Grass. Hello, this is Bill Kemp, substituting for Herb Oscar Anderson. And uh, I welcome you to the program that asks the question, is there a doctor in the house? Live from the American Radio Theater in New York City, the American Broadcasting Network presents the Bill Kemp Show, featuring Betty Ho, Peter Hanley, the Noteworthies, and the music of Neil Hefty and his orchestra. I'm George Ansbro, and now here's our Bill, Bill Kemp. Thank you. Thank you very much, and good evening. Uh, before going any further, I would like to convey my thanks very sincerely to Herb Oscar Anderson, who substituted for me last week when the Asian flu bug took a bite at me. Uh, Herb did this, by the way, on approximately one hour's notice, and I do appreciate it tremendously. Uh, quite honestly, I don't think I'm over the flu yet. I may sound that way, too. And uh, 
Well, the doctors, they say I am simply because this morning I tried to blow the foam off my medicine. Now, I don't agree with them. However, it did occur to me that it might be worthwhile for me to return to this theater where I've done so many broadcasts because it, uh, well, it seems illogical to me that any germ could live in this atmosphere, you see? And, uh, oh, this doctor of mine, he said that exercise is the best way to get rid of a germ. Well, how are you going to get a germ to exercise? You, know, you can't. You can't do it. Plus, which I don't have too much faith in my doctor, quite honestly. I mean, he's been practicing for 20 years now, and he still hasn't made enough to buy a license. In addition, he hasn't been able to afford the proper equipment with which to sterilize his instruments, so once a week he takes them to the YMCA steam room. I mean, it makes you wonder, a guy like that. Friends, one of the members of our stellar cast is a young man who has a record going for him right now on the Jubilee label. Not only is he featured vocally on the number, but he wrote the tune. The title of the number is The Rock and Roll Polka. The young man's name is Peter Hanley, and I think if we gave him a warm welcome, he might do that number for us. On Wednesday, October 9th, 1957, at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, the Bill Kemp Show took to the air over ABC. Bill Kemp was born on July 10th, 1921 in Toronto, Canada. An up-and-coming performer in the 1950s, his daily radio show ran weeknights at 8 p.m. The show was the final in a 12-hour daily live broadcast project by ABC called the Live and Lively Radio Network. ABC's intention was to raise ratings by going back to live broadcasts in the era of tape shows. Interestingly, it was ABC that helped launch the non-mutual broadcasting transcribed primetime era with Bing Crosby's Philco Radio Time in 1946. Kemp's show featured an orchestra, vocalist, and guest stars like Jonathan Winters. Kemp's announcer, George Ansborough, remembered that Kemp once went laugh for laugh with Winters after a particularly successful broadcast and continued the antics all the way to a nearby steakhouse. Unfortunately, Kemp also developed a debilitating drinking problem. Merv Griffin and Jim Backus were called on several occasions to cover for Kemp during absences for personal reasons. something to the audience a moment ago, a theater audience, that uh, the one thing that bothers me about this sort of the after effects of the Asian flu is the fact that at any moment I'm liable to start coughing. It's, uh, I suppose, part mental, but still a hangover from the flu, and I got kind of worried. However, I ran into a friend of mine outside the theater just before starting the show, a guy who has a program each Saturday morning on the ABN network, tremendous disc jockey, a wonderful fellow, and he said, well, I'll stand by for you, Bill, you know, if you feel you're going to cough or something, why, call me in. He's been standing in the wings, bless his soul. Friends, I'd like you to meet Johnny Pearson. Johnny? You know, actually, it's a big pleasure and a big thrill for me, Bill, to come out here and uh, be able to see all the fine folks that you have. We don't have a live audience, you know, at our show. No, that's true. We have it in a big studio. Mm -hmm. And uh, to get to see the, all the folks, it's, it's, I brought along a few autograph pictures. Not many. You did. But uh, could you make the announcement? Well, I'm still trying to get rid of mine. I mean, I, I might also add there are times when we don't have a live audience either, uh, Johnny, so don't let that worry you, boy. Uh, I would mind. like to... Never mind. 
Don't try to assassinate me before I'm underway. I'd also like to say that, uh, gee, I, I can remember, and I think it's wonderful, speaking of it being a thrill to me, I used to dance to your son's music just a lot of times. Hal Kemp, yes, yeah. my son. Well, Johnny, after all, I think I'll make it tonight. I don't think I'll need you. <laughs> well, I'll right. stand by over here with the cough drops. Don't stand by. I'll tell you what you do. Do you know the, uh, the next number? Do you have an idea what it I is? I do sing a bit, yes. No, I don't know oh. that you have to sing. <laughs> This kid, he's too much. I knew I shouldn't have gotten out of bed. I should have phoned the show in. All right, uh, tell you, you know who's going to sing the next number? Not for sure. Tell You're you not for sure. No, it's a very pretty girl. My goodness, Betty Holt. Of course, good. And half with think of any, uh, the up there. She is. Uh, <laughs> matter of fact, she's singing a very uh, delightful thing, sort of a musical suggestion, and I advise you all to take it. It's called "Love Me to Pieces." Go ahead, Beth. <laughs> One week after this broadcast on Wednesday, October 16th, Queen Elizabeth II departed from Ottawa and arrived in Williamsburg, Virginia. The next day, she was in Washington, D.C. While at the White House, Prince Philip received the gold medal of the National Geographic Society. On October 18th, two U.S. Navy balloonists flew to an altitude of 16 miles, landing near Hermansville, Michigan. On October 19th, the Queen and Prince Philip attended an American football game in College Park, Maryland, and then visited a supermarket in West Hyattsville. The same day, a beauty pageant winner was killed en route to her coronation in a helicopter crash in Farmingdale, New York. A Montreal Canadian star, Maurice the Rocket Richard, became the first player in National Hockey League history to score 500 career goals. much, Betty. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a number of very distinguished guests in our uh, theater audience tonight, including Mr. Uh, Mr. Marlon Howard, the celebrated author whose latest book, I Was a Girl Scout for the Boy Scouts, is a big seller. Uh, we also have with us Mr. Bartley Rasmus, the well-known health and diet lecturer and author of the exciting new book, Eat and Grow Fat. He's sitting in our first row. As a matter of fact, he is our first row. And uh, let's see who else we have with us. We have Mr. Ramsey Brown, who sells round pool tables to lighthouse keepers. And who else do we have? And from overseas, we have Mr. Kenneth Franklin. He's from South Africa, who is visiting the United States for two years as a guerrilla exchange student. And of course, I mustn't forget the famous motion picture actor, Touch Bottom. He's with us tonight. As you know, the star of the new upcoming and very exciting movie, The Bowery Boys Meet Moby Dick. escape into a different world. It's a podcast frozen in time and space where anything can happen. B.
be intrigued. I'm ready to confess to the crime of murder. Be in suspense. What is that sound? Be entertained. Go ahead, suck on that straw, you. Be moved to tears. No! Be transported back in time. Terror on the air. Tune in on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, keep your volume turned up for terror. This is Ben Grauer. Words by the Millions have been published and broadcast dealing with the integration crisis at Central High School in Little Rock. The president, governors, the highest courts, the military, all these have been drawn into legal aspects of the problem which touches deepest principles of American life. But the final solution of this crisis must rest in the minds and emotions of the students of Central High. Tonight, NBC News brings you an intimate glimpse of their thoughts. Seven Central High pupils, representing all shades of student thinking, were brought together by Mrs. Joan Ricketts, a correspondent for Norwegian newspapers. Their discussion is informal. So were the circumstances surrounding the recording of their words. At times, they accidentally tapped the microphone or ignored it entirely, so that the recording will require your closest attention, an attention which should be rewarding. The students participating are Sammy Dean Parker, Kay Bacon, Robin Woods, Joseph Fox, white pupils, Ernest Green, Minnie Jean Brown, Melba Patillo, Negro pupils. As we join the group, Mrs. Ricketts is asking the panel what they think would happen if all troops were withdrawn from around the school. The first reply is by one of the white girls, Sammy Parker. What do you say about that, Sammy? Well, um... I had heard talk around school that I wouldn't say for sure that there would be any... As we covered in the previous episode, number 143 of Breaking Walls, in Little Rock, Arkansas, on September 4th, 1957, nine African-American students attempted to attend their first day of high school at the newly integrated Little Rock Central High. The National Guard, on orders of the Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus, prevented the students from entering the school. The governor then locked himself in his mansion, refusing to come out. President Dwight D. Eisenhower soon met with the governor, and the National Guard was removed. On September 23rd, the nine students entered Little Rock Central High for the first time, ignoring verbal abuse and threats from a crowd outside. Well, I feel the same way that Robin does. I don't mind them going to school with me. I mean, the Supreme Court made this decision, and I feel that, that you ought, since the Supreme Court is there to make decisions like that, I believe that you ought to abide by what they say and not have all this violence and stuff that we've been having. I think it's, it's mostly the violence that we had that one Monday morning was mostly the parents, and a lot of the people that were out in front of school, I don't think, even had children in school. What is it exactly that you have against having Negroes in your school? Okay. I think it's that they've got schools to go to of their own. That's what most of the parents When the mob realized the students had entered the school, violence erupted, and seven journalists were attacked. Not because that I have a school of my own, I mean... I, being a citizen of the United States, have just as much rights as the other person. As the situation deteriorated, 
School officials, fearing for the students' safety, dismissed the Little Rock Nine at lunchtime. Why should I have to go two miles, two or three miles every day when I was cool in my district? I mean, it's not that I want to socialize, uh, mix with other people, but it's just that I want to get an education just like everyone else. The next day, President Eisenhower ordered paratroopers from the 101st Airborne Division to escort the students to the building, signaling out those bent on disrupting the federal integration mandate. Over the following days, Eisenhower federalized 10,000 Arkansas National Guardsmen, removing them from the control of the governor. The Little Rock Nine were finally able to attend classes in late September, but they faced threats, verbal abuse, and hazing from both white students and adults alike. On Thursday, October 17, 1957, NBC Radio broadcast a special with students from Little Rock Central High about their feelings on integration. Have come to our school with their headphones. Uh, uh, you said that they had gotten along without mixing in school. Does so that mean um, mixing socially or just being together? Being together and going to school. Well, getting along outside is still mixing together, but not socially. Oh, you don't have to be socially <laughs> in school. Do you? No, uh, really, I mean, the purpose for our going to school is not for socialization. That, I mean, really, I don't know how people get that idea. We're going there for education, uh, education only. Hmm. Uh, if you didn't have school, I mean, what have you been taught that makes you just hate it so much? I don't hate you. I think y'all have a lot better, a lot nicer schools than we have much more modern. Right, Robin. <laughs> well, Horace Mann is a beautiful school, I'll admit that. But I've heard that. Uh, they don't have the, the same opportunities inside, do they, Ernest? Uh, let me make that clear. Horace Mann is a modern building. It is new, extremely new. But when Horace Mann just doesn't have the courses that Central has, Horace Mann, Central has all those thematic courses. That I, I'm even taking a course this year they don't offer over to Horace Mann. That's government. Well, uh, in uh, social life, a grown-up, you will have to live and work together with Negroes. You all agree that we have to live together, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think it is possible to start working this out on a more sensible basis than violent demonstrations then? No, I don't. Because the South has always been against racialism, and I think that they will fight this thing to the end. What do you mean to the end? What do you fight for? Well, we fight for our freedom. That's one thing, and we don't have any freedom. Anymore. Can you not be free together when we grow? Can we not be free? Well, I'd like to mention one thing. I can remember last year, I had one good year at Central, and it has not been a good year this year. Ernest? Uh, she, uh, Sammy, uh, you said that you don't have freedom I wonder what do you mean by that you don't have freedom? You're guaranteed our freedoms in the uh, Bill of Rights and the Constitution. You have the freedom of speech. And I've noticed that that has been exercised a whole lot in Little Rock. Uh, uh, do you call those troops freedom? I don't. <laughs> no. And I also do not call 
freedom when you all are being escorted into the school every morning. Why don't they just let you come from your home by yourself to school? What would happen then? I don't know what would happen. I just wonder. That's what I mean by freedom. All right, Sally, would you answer back? Yes. I mean, Ernest, would you answer back? Uh, you say, uh, why did the troops come here? It is because that uh, our government, our state government, went against the federal law and when a state this is a federal uh our state our country is set up so that we have 48 states and no one state has the ability to overrule our national government i thought that was what our country was built around i mean that's why we fight we fought world war ii together uh the fellows that i know died in world war ii they died in the korean war i mean well why should my friends get out there and die for our cause called democracy when I can't even exercise my right. Tell me that. Uh, Robin, as a moderate, I agree with Ernest that uh, the freedom, I mean, we don't have because we're there escorted to school by the federal troops is that uh, the National Guard, the Arkansas National Guard was, was there, were there to keep them from coming in and to obey the, the federal law and to protect us from ourselves and Oh dear. Well, <laughs> Joe, as, as, as I think as, they're there to maintain law and order. All right, Joe, as a, as a moderate, also, what do you think? Well, now, Sammy, I don't know what freedom has been taken away from you because the troops are there. I know as a senior myself, the troops haven't kept me from going to my classes or participating in any school activities. I mean, they're there just to keep order in case some, I might use the term hothead, get riled up, but I think as long as the, if the parents would just stay out of it and let the children or the students at Central High figure it out for themselves, I think it would be a whole lot better. I think the students are mature enough to figure it out for themselves. We nine Migos that are in our school now are real intelligent. We know them. And we're real kind to it. And you haven't tried anything to, you know, start anything like that. But what will the next Migos do? The next five or six hundred, what will they do? Will they be as quiet about the whole thing as you are? Joe? Well, I think Sammy and, and uh, I, I don't think when six or seven, maybe eight hundred more colored students come over there, I don't think that as far as violence go, we have fights over at school all the time. Is this over this issue? No, no, no over oh, anything. Mean, we don't fight fighting. over anything. But. Although the conditions the Little Rock Nine had to endure were deplorable, when the spring of 1958 came around, eight of the nine had successfully completed the school year. I remember one incident when uh, even girls get together and whip each other's blouses off. What about Sorry Wrong Number? How did they decide that Agnes Moorhead was the right gal to play? I don't think they decided at all. The script was written for me by Lucille Fletcher, and it was presented to me. I started to read it, and it got so 
nerve-wracking that I thought no one will listen to this, you know, because it just just unnerves you as you go along, Mr. Mm -hmm. Bill Spear was the director. He asked me what I thought of it, and I said, well, it's a harrowing story, but it'd be kind of fun to do, because it is a, you know, it's a tour de force. We went on the air with it. The first time we went on the air, they got so excited at the very end that they didn't do the right ending. The men were so excited that it kind of frustrated the them. The actors? The actors uh -huh. and the sound. And so there were a great many people who were, had been listening in, and they called in and said, what is the end of it? Tell us the end of it. So in about, I would say in about five weeks, I repeated it. It was almost a command performance about once, I don't know, I, I did it 18 times on the air. 18? Yes. Oh my goodness. You and made recordings? Then I made a recording of it with Decca. Mm -hmm. On Sunday, October 20th, 1957, at 4.35 p.m. Eastern Time, the just-heard Agnes Moorhead starred for the seventh time in Suspense's adaptation of Lucille Fletcher's harrowing story, Sorry, Wrong Number. In this play, a bedridden invalid attempting to call her husband accidentally overhears a plot between two men to kill some woman thanks to cross phone lines. Over the course of the story, she desperately attempts to get uninterested phone operators and policemen to care until she finds out who the intended victim really is. It is quite possibly the most famous thriller in radio history. Miss Moorhead played this part eight times in the years suspense was on the air. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. Radio drama is an art form which developed slowly during the quarter century between the perfecting of the audio tube of Dr. Lee DeForest and the video tube of Dr. Vladimir Zwyorkin. We feel that great radio plays, just as great stage plays, should be revived from time to time. So, we are presenting a revival of one of the most famous radio plays of all time, Lucille Fletcher's unforgettable Sorry Wrong Number. And of course, there is only one actress in the world entitled to play the leading role of the harassed Mrs. Stevenson. She who created the role 14 years ago, Miss Agnes Moorhead. Listen. Listen then to Sorry Wrong Number, which begins in exactly one minute. We have, together, ample capacity in freedom to defend freedom. This is NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Day after day, month after month, since April 4th, 1949, the activities of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization have moved steadily forward on many fronts. This complete cooperation must and will continue because the concept of national self-sufficiency is out of date. Countries of the free world are interdependent, and only in genuine partnership, and by combining their resources, sharing tasks in many fields, can progress and safety be found. The United States of America is a part of NATO. You should be aware of and alert to 
the objectives and programs of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And now... Sorry, Wrong Number, starring Miss Agnes Moorhead. A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. Operator, I've been dialing Murray Hill 40599. Now, for the last three quarters of an hour, and the line is always busy, I don't see how it could be busy that long. Will you try it for me, please? I will be glad to try that number for you. One moment, please. You see, it's my husband's office. He's working late tonight, and I'm all alone here in the house. My health is very poor, and I've been feeling so nervous all day. I am day. ringing Murray Hill 40599. Hello? 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 Is Mr. Stevenson there? Hello? 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 Hello, George? Yes, boss. This is George speaking. Hello? Who's this? What number is this, please? I'm here with our client. Oh, good. Is everything set up for tonight? Well, yes, George. He says everything is set up. Good. What number is this, please? Where are you now? In a phone booth. Don't worry. Everything is okay in my department. Very well. You got the address? Sure. I got it all cased. At 11 o'clock, the private patrolman goes around to a bar on 2nd Avenue for a what? beer. Yes. At 11.15, a train crosses the bridge. It makes a noise in case her window is open and she should scream. Uh, hello? Remember, George, make it quick. Our client doesn't wish her to suffer long. Oh. I'll use a knife, then. Yes, a knife will do very well. And remember afterwards, remove her rings and bracelets and the jewelry in the bureau drawer. Our client wishes it to look like simple robbery. I know, I know. Don't worry. I never muff a job like this. Everything's okay. I never... Oh, how... Awful. How unspeakably awful. Operator. Operator, I've just been cut off. I'm sorry. What number were you calling? Why, it was supposed to be Murray Hill 40599, but it wasn't some wires must have got crossed, and I was cut into a wrong number, and I, I've just heard the most dreadful things, something about a murder. And, Operator, you'll simply have to trace that call at once. What was the number? Well, I don't know. It was a wrong number, and these two men, they were cold-blooded fiends. And they were going to murder somebody. Some poor, innocent woman who was all alone in a house near a bridge. Uh, we've got to stop them. We've what just got to... What number were you calling? Well, that doesn't matter. It was a wrong number. Now, look, it was obviously a case of some little slip of the finger. I asked you to get me Murray Hill 40599 who dialed it, but your finger must have slipped. And I was connected with some other number. I, I could hear them, but they couldn't hear me. Now, I simply fail to see why you couldn't make that same mistake again on purpose, why you couldn't try to dial Murray Hill 40599 in the same sort of careless way. Murray Hill 40599. I will try to get it for you. Well, thank you. Sorry, Murray Hill 40599 is busy. Uh, but, operator... Yes, ma'am? You didn't try to get that wrong number at all. I asked you explicitly, and all you did was dial correctly. I'm sorry. I will connect you with the supervisor. Well, please. This is the supervisor. May I help you? Uh, yes, I, I want you to trace a call, a telephone call immediately. I don't know where it came from or who was making it, but it's absolutely necessary that it be traced because it was about a murder that someone's planning. A, a terrible, cold-blooded murder of a poor, innocent woman. Tonight, at 11.15. I see. Well, can you trace it for me? Can you track down those men? I'm not certain. I can try. May I have your name, please? 
Mrs. Stevenson, Mrs. Albert Stevenson. But, but listen, and I... And your telephone number, please? Oh, Plaza 37599. But if you go on wasting all this why time... Why do you want this call traced, please? Why? Well, I told you why. These men sounded like killers. They're dangerous. They're going to murder this woman at 11.15 tonight, and I thought the police ought to know. Have you reported this to the police? Well, no, not yet. You want this call checked purely as a private individual? Well, yes, but meanwhile... I'm sorry, you... Mrs. Stevenson, but I'm afraid we couldn't trace the call just on your say-so as a private individual. Oh. We'd have to have something more official. Oh, for heaven's sake. Well, all right, I'll call the police. Thank you. I'm sure that would be the best way to get home. Ridiculous. <laughs> The second act of Suspense continues in one minute. Another visit with Joe and Daphne Forsythe. This particular adaptation co-stars a who's who of radio veterans, including Jeanette Nolan, Virginia Gregg, and Byron Kane. This is Byron Kane, followed by Virginia Gregg. It was all on-the-job training. It started in that backyard of Richard Pettuccini when I said to my other friend, oh yes, I will go over. I walked over to KMPC against the wall with high Aberback, and away I went. That was really the first thing. Why I was able to do it, I can only say Mother Nature gave me that gift. I was. I have theories, of course, about acting, and as, as many years have passed, I've talked to younger actors and who told me about their desires and their systems and the methods and the things, and I could go on for hours about that. I think a fine actor or actress, I believe I know, a fine actor or actress is born. You don't learn to be a fine actress. You can learn on the job and learn tricks. Oh, my God, the mistakes I've made. Of course, of course. But the Lorene Tuttles, whoever, however she started, no one has to tell me. She was born, and I could go to the list of the people that you could remind me of that I've forgotten. Have a guaranteed interest that pays back four dollars for every three. I enjoyed the people in it too. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of loyalty, camaraderie. Mm -hmm. See, we were together so much. In the beginning, there were, oh, I think, 1,500 members of AFRA, then mm -hmm. AFRA. Uh, they figured about 400, 450 did practically all of the work. Mm -hmm. Of course, that wasn't very many, and we spent a great deal of time together, and that was before the days of tape. Mm -hmm. Or even on tape, lots of times you spent many hours together. But we would have a break. You didn't have long enough to go anywhere, and we got to know each other very, very well, and our problems, they were like family. We'd hear about somebody who was having kind of a rough time. We'd go to one of the other producers and say, gee, Dick's having a hard time paying his rent. You think there's anything for him next week? And they'd get behind him, and he'd be working. So you'd all act as perhaps an agent for someone yeah, else? Yeah, for could. everybody else. It really is a nice family kind of it relationship. Was. It was. It was. We were very close and very loving, Fast very talking. caring. And now... We continue with Act Two of Sorry, Wrong Number. Starring Miss Agnes Moorhead. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Operator? The police department. Get me the police department, please. Thank you. I will connect you with the police department. Oh, dear. You have to dial. Can't you ring them directly? 
Police station, precinct 43, Sergeant Martin speaking. Police department? Oh, uh, uh, this is Mrs. Stevenson. Mrs. Albert Smythe Stevenson of 53 North Sutton Place. I'm calling up to report a murder. I, I mean, the, the murder hasn't been committed yet, but I just... I overheard plans for it over the telephone, over a wrong number that the operator gave me. Yes, ma'am. It was a perfectly definite murder. I heard their plans distinctly. Uh, two men were talking, and they were going to murder some woman at 11.15 tonight. Uh, she lived in a house near a bridge. Are you listening to me? Yes, ma'am. And there was a private patrolman on the street. He was going to go around for a beer on 2nd Avenue. And uh, there was some third man, a client, who was paying to have this poor woman murdered. They were going to take her rings and bracelets and use a knife. Uh, well, it's, it's just unnerved me dreadfully, and I'm not well. I see, and uh, when was all this, ma'am? About eight minutes ago. And what was that number you were calling? Murray Hill 40599, but that wasn't the number I overheard. I mean, Murray Hill 40599 is my husband's office. He's working late tonight, and I was trying to reach him to ask him to come home. I'm an invalid, you know, and it's the maiden night off, and I hate to be alone, even though he says I'm perfectly safe as long as I have the telephone right beside my bed. Well, we'll look into it, Mrs. Stevenson, see if we can check it with the telephone company. Check, check it! I've already taken care of that. Oh, you have? Yes, and personally, I feel you want to do something far more immediate and drastic than just check the call. I'd say the whole thing calls for a search. A complete and thorough search of the whole city. I'm very near the bridge, and I'm not far from 2nd Avenue, and I know I'd feel a whole lot better if you sent around a radio car to this neighborhood at once. And what makes you think the murder's going to be committed in your neighborhood, ma'am? Well, I... Well, I don't know. Only the coincidence is so horrible. 2nd uh, Avenue, the patrolman, the bridge? Look, lady, why don't you look at it this way? Supposing you hadn't broken in on that telephone call. Supposing you'd got your husband the way you always do. You wouldn't be so upset, would you? Well... I suppose not, only it sounded so inhuman, so cold-blooded. Unless, of course, you have some reason for thinking that someone may be planning to murder you. Me? Oh, no, no, I hardly think so. I I mean, why should anybody? I'm alone all day and night. I, I see nobody except my maid, Eloise. She's a big girl. She weighs 200 pounds. She's too lazy to bring up my breakfast tray. And the only other person is my husband, Albert. He's just crazy about me, just adores me. Waits on me hand and foot. Has scarcely left my side since I took sick 12 years ago. Well, then there's nothing for you to worry about. Now, if you'll just leave the rest of this to us, we'll take care of it. But what will you do? It's so late. It's nearly 11 now. We'll take care of it, lady. Well, will you broadcast it all over the city and send out squads and warn your radio cars to watch out, especially in suspicious neighborhoods like mine? Look, lady, I said we'd take care of it. Just now, I've got a couple of drunks here that require my immediate attention. Good night, ma'am, and thank you. Oh, you, you... Idiot! Oh. Now, why did I hang up the phone like that? Now he'll think I am a fool. Oh, why doesn't Elbert come home? Why doesn't he? Get the operator again. Operator? Operator, for heaven's sake, will you ring that Murray Hill 40599 number again? I can't think what's keeping him so long. I will try it for you. I'm sorry, Murray Hill 40599 is busy. I can hear it. You don't have to tell me. I know it's busy. Oh, if I could only get out of this bed for a little while. If I could just get a breath of fresh air or just lean out of the window and see the street. Oh. Hello, Albert? Hello? 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 Oh, what's the matter with this phone? Hello? Hello? What in the world? Hello? 
for heaven's sake, who is this? Hello? 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 What in the world? What are they trying to do to me anyway? Operator. Hello, operator. I don't know what's the matter with this telephone tonight, but it's positively driving me crazy. I've never seen such inefficient, miserable service. Now, look, I'm an invalid, and I'm very nervous. And I'm not supposed to be annoyed. But if this keeps on much longer... What seems to be the trouble, please? Well, everything's wrong. I haven't had one bit of satisfaction out of one call I've made this evening. The whole world could be murdered for all you people care. And now my phone keeps ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing every five seconds. And when I pick it up, there's no one there. I'm sorry. If you will hang up, I will test it for you. I don't want you to test it for me. I want you to put that call through, whoever it is, at once. I'm afraid I can't do that. You can't? Oh, you can't. And why? Why, may I ask? The dial system is automatic. Automatic? And meanwhile, I've got to sit here in my bed suffering every time that phone rings, imagining everything. I will try to check the trouble for you. Oh, for heaven's sake, I'm going to be on my mind. Hello! Hello! Stop ringing me. Do you hear? Answer me. Who is this? Do you realize you're driving me crazy? Who's calling me? What are you doing it for? Now stop it! Stop it! Stop it! I say, hello! If you don't stop ringing me, I'm going to call the police. Do you hear? The police! I... Oh, oh if, if Albert would only come home. Oh, let it ring. Go on, go on, ring. Trick of some kind. I won't answer that one. Go on, ring, ring, ring. Ring. <laughs> Can an act of heroism be symbolized? It can and is in one of its most distinguished forms. Would you say that that was your most exciting radio performance? No, no. I've had loads of exciting radio performances. I don't think that that just happens to be a memorable one, but I mean, many of them. Many of the ones on Cavalcade of America. Oh, so many of them that were, that were exciting. Red, white, and blue. This is the Army's Distinguished Service Medal, awarded to military personnel for exceptionally meritorious service to the government in a duty of great responsibility. This medal also has been awarded to military personnel of other countries, notably the leaders of the Allied troops in World War I, General Patin of France, Field Marshal Haig of Great Britain, and Lieutenant General Diaz of Italy. In nature and background, the Distinguished Service Medal is somewhat similar to the Legion of Honor bestowed by France. Only a few are worthy. Only a few can measure up to this symbol of selfless dedication, a vital and living form of freedom. And now... We continue with Act Three of Sorry, Wrong Number, starring Miss Agnes Moorhead. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! I can't stand anymore! Stop it! Hello! What do you want? Stop ringing, will you? Stop it! Just stop! Uh, hello, is this Plaza 37599? Oh, yes. Yes, I'm sorry, this is Plaza 37599. This is Western Union. I have a telegram here from Mrs. Albert Stevenson. Oh, well... I'm Mrs. Stevenson. The telegram is as follows. Darling, terribly sorry. Tried to get you for last hour, but line busy. Oh. Leaving for Boston 11 p.m. tonight on urgent business. Oh, no. Back tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> Keep happy. 
Love, signed Albert. Oh, oh no. Do you wish us to deliver a copy of the message? No. No, no, thank you. Thank you, madam. Good night. Good night. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't believe it. He couldn't do it. Not when he knows I'll be all alone. It's some trick, some fiendish trick. <laughs> Operation. Operator, try that Murray Hill 40599 number for me just once more, please. You may dial that number direct. Oh, I can't do it. No one will do anything for me. I... Oh, I... So How could you? How could you? <laughs> I can't be alone tonight. I just, I just can't. If I'm alone one more second, I'll go mad. I, I don't care what he says or, or, or what the expense is. I'm a sick woman. I'm entitled to a little consideration. <laughs> Information. I, I want the telephone number of, of Henchley Hospital. Henchley Hospital? Do you have the street address? Uh, no, no, but it's somewhere in the 70s. It's a very small, private, and exclusive hospital where I had my appendix out two years ago. Henchley, H-E-N-C. One moment, please. Uh, well, please hurry, and please, what is the time? You may find out the time by dialing Meridian oh. 71212. Oh, for heaven's sake, I've no time to be dialing. The Henchley Hospital is Butterfield 8. Butterfield 2598. Oh. oh. Butterfield. 8. 2. 5. 9. 8. Henchley Hospital, good evening. Uh, uh, nurses registry, please. Who was it you wished to speak to, please? I want the nurse's registry at once. I want a trained nurse. I want to hire her immediately for the night. I see. And what is the nature of the case, madam? Nerves! I'm very nervous. I need soothing and companionship. You see, my, my husband is away. Have you been recommended and I... to us by any doctor in particular, madam? No. And our superintendent has asked us to send people out only in those cases where the physician in charge feels it is absolutely necessary. Well, it is absolutely necessary. I'm, I'm a sick woman. I'm, I'm, I'm very upset. I'm alone in this house, and I'm an invalid, and, and tonight I overheard a telephone conversation that upset me dreadfully. In fact, if someone doesn't come at once, I'm afraid I'll go out of my mind. I see. Well, I'll speak to Miss Phillips Miss as Phil soon as she comes in. Miss Phillips? And what is your name, madam? When do you expect her in? Well, I really couldn't say. She went out to supper at 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock? But it's not 11 yet. Where's my clock? Oh, my clock has stopped. Oh, what time is it? Just... Fifteen minutes past eleven. Oh, what was that? What was, what, madam? That, that click, just now, in my own telephone. As though someone has lifted the receiver off the hook of the extension phone downstairs. I didn't hear it, madam. Now about... But I did! Kid. There's someone in this house. Someone downstairs in the kitchen and they're, they're listening to me now. They're... I won't pick it up. I won't let them hear me. I'll be quiet and then they'll think. But if I don't call someone now, while they're still down there, there'll be no time. I've got to get the operator. I've got to get the operator. 
Operator. Operator, I'm uh, I'm in desperate trouble. I'm sorry, I cannot hear you. Please speak louder. I don't I don't dare. There's someone listening. Can you hear me now? I'm sorry. But you've got to hear me. Oh, please, you've got to help me. There's, there's someone in this house. Someone who's going to murder me. And you've got to get in touch with the... There it is. Did you hear it? He's, he's put it down. He's put down the extension phone. He's, he's coming up. He's, he's coming up the stairs. Oh, give me the police department. Give me the police department. One moment, please. I will oh, connect please. you. Please. He's got the hurry. Get the police, please. Oh, I've got it. What? What do you want? Oh, don't. Don't come near me. Please, I haven't hurt anybody. Please, I haven't. Please don't hurt me. Please. I haven't got anything. Police department? Sorry, wrong number. Don't worry, everything is okay here. Suspense. In which Miss Agnes Moorhead starred in William N. Robeson's production of Sorry, Wrong Number. Written by Lucille Fletcher. Supporting Miss Moorhead in Sorry, Wrong Number were Jeanette Nolan, Virginia Gregg, Ellen Morgan, Joe DeSantis, Byron Kane, and Norm Alden. Listen. Listen again next week when we return with The Country of the Blind by H.G. Wells. Another tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. Brought to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. The last thing is the Groucho thing, and you're running out of your time here, I see. You've got about right. five minutes. <laughs> started in an interesting way. Ever the way. producer, ever yeah. the producer. Well, there was a Walgreen two-hour radio show on once a year to, for a penny sale, and they got a lot of people that were stars. Radio spectacular, I guess you'd mm -hmm. call it. And Linkletter was called to do a People Are Funny stunt, and I was the producer, and so I was there, and I held the needle which was to hand to Linkletter, which was to hand to Cesar Romero, who was blindfolded, who was supposed to put a patch on the seat of a contestant's pants. It was a very high-class stunt. <laughs> but I was sitting there in the audience watching Bob Hope and Groucho Marx reading a script, mm -hmm. funny stuff, and Bob dropped his script by accident. 
So Groucho dropped his script on purpose, and they were much, much funnier with their scripts dropped than they were reading the mm -hmm. stuff. And afterwards, I went up to Groucho, whom I didn't know, and said, you know, hiring you to read a script is like buying a Cadillac for the purpose of hauling coal. You don't utilize mm -hmm. your abilities. And he'd flopped four times on the radio. I said, you want to do a quiz show? He says, you mean compete with refrigerators? And I said, yeah. He says, well, I've flopped four times so far. What can I lose? And that's how we went mm -hmm. in business together to do this particular show, which was a rebirth for him because he was oh, 57 yeah. years uh -huh. old then. You Bet Your Life, conceived by the just heard John Goodell and hosted by comedian Groucho Marx, debuted over ABC's Airwaves on October 27, 1947. We made that show for $250 and the radio record. And I took it to all the networks. They all turned it down because they said Groucho's flopped four times on the radio. So then I read in the paper, here's the reading the variety again, that Alan Gelman, president of Elgin American Compact Company of Chicago, is coming to the Beverly Hills Hotel to sign up Phil Baker for his <laughs> new quiz show, Everybody Wins is going to, see? So I called up Mr. Gelman at the Beverly Hills. I said, have you signed up Phil Baker yet? He says, no. I said, I want you to hear a record. So I took the record up to his room and played it. And he didn't know Groucho had flopped four times on the radio. He says, this is a funny record. I remember him in the coconuts. That's a pretty funny man, you know. <laughs> okay, and we made the deal. And Phil Baker fired his press agent. <laughs> anyway, that's how the thing got on. Three couples were brought on stage to be interviewed and quizzed by Groucho. Each couple was given $20 and told to bet as much as they dared risk on four questions from a category of their choosing. The money would double with each successive step. Couples could win $320, go broke on the first question, or finish anywhere in between. The couple with the largest money total got a chance at the jackpot question, worth at least $1,000. There was also a secret word each week, with bonus money to be divided if someone said the word while the show was on the air. Although 1947 was radio's highest rated season, the quiz show aired against NBC's Mr. District Attorney on Wednesdays at 9.30. At season's end, You Bet Your Life only pulled a rating of 13. Groucho felt uncomfortable trying to be funny on a live radio show. Goodell's answer was to record the show, which allowed Groucho to relax. The program could then be edited for time later. The idea worked. The show moved to CBS in 1949. You Bet Your Life became network radio's top-rated quiz show, finishing the season in 11th place overall. The Groucho thing was on radio first for a couple of years before it went Three years. TV. Three years on radio and then um, 11 on television. Yeah. Did it go into television with Elgin American or right away with... Oh, no. Elgin American was only on... They'd go on for 26 weeks and then try to get out for the... See, they only had Christmas selling. Oh, I see. And okay. we just fussed along with them. And they were nice people because mm -hmm. they started us. But it was DeSoto, Plymouth, Chrysler yeah. Plymouth, that really took over there. Yeah. And they kept it for a long while, and we ran DeSoto out of business, made it an extinct car by having so many people. Actually, it wasn't the right product. Here we had a very large mass audience, the number one, number two show in radio and television, and a $6,000 item. 
So we figured Tony and Lieber Brothers and those people, those are the ones that could use it, and those are the ones that finally got it. Uh The contract with the Soda Plymouth of Chrysler was worth $4 million over 10 years. It also moved the show to NBC Radio and TV, beginning October 4, 1950. The program remained a top 15 hit until 1957. That October 23rd, it was airing on radio Wednesday evenings at 9 p.m. This episode's secret word was money. Ladies and gentlemen, the secret word is money. M-O-N-E-Y. Really? You bet your life. It's Groucho Marx in You Bet Your Life, the comedy quiz series produced and transcribed from Hollywood and brought to you by the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers of America, who invite you to see and drive the most exciting car in the world today, DeSoto for 1957. The most exciting car today is now delighting the far highway. It's the lovely, it's dynamic, it's DeSoto. Exciting style to please the eye, exciting power to pass them by. It's the lovely, it's dynamic, it's DeSoto. Here he is, the one, the only... Well, here I am again with a chance for each of our couples to win up to $10,000. We also have a secret word, and if any of our couples say it, they'll win an extra $100. Okay, George, who's first? Gotcha, we have a married couple waiting to talk to you. They're Mr. and Mrs. Robert McLeod. So, folks, you come in, please, and meet... Groucho Marx. Welcome to your Bet Your Life. Say the secret word and take home an extra $100. It's a common word, something you see every day. Mr. Mr. Mrs. Mr. Mrs. Robert McLeod. Huh? You're a fine, uh, happy-looking uh, married couple. Mrs. McLeod, what is your first name? Uni. Uni? Uni? Uni, E-U-N-I. What sort of a name is that? Well, I don't really know, Groucho. I think it comes from Eunice, and that's Greek. It means good victory. Oh, well, good victory to you tonight, too. <laughs> Thank you. Where are you from, Uni? I'm from Massachusetts. Massachusetts, huh? Never heard of it. Huh? <laughs> and where are you from, uh, Bob? I'm from Texas, but I spent most of my time in Phoenix, Arizona. Oh. Well, what did you do in Phoenix? I joined the U.S. 25th Infantry, served in there, and I fought in the rain. Why did you fight in the rain? I don't understand this. Well, I tried to make some money, Groucho. <laughs> Well, you made some money. You made some money. You made yourself $100 for you and, uh, and your wife, yeah? Thank you. Now, l- let me get this straight. You say you joined the infantry? Well, I fought as a civilian, then I fought while I was in service. You were fighting all the time, huh? <laughs> but I don't, uh, were you a professional fighter? Professional fighter. Oh, you were a prize fighter, huh? All right. Oh. How many fights did you have? 25 more, about you, be exact. You must have been pretty good. There's not a mark on you. How many fights did you win? Uh, 25. <laughs> well, at that time, it wasn't too much money fighting, so I quit ahead. Uh, that's ridiculous. Good fighters clean up. Look at Joe Lewis. <laughs> Joe Lewis owes the government over a million dollars. Now, which one of your 25 fights do you remember most clearly. Oh, I remember fighting K.O. Kelly from New Orleans. And we fought four rounds, that was. 
In the third round, I knocked Kelly's trunks off mid-range. <laughs> Was it raining then? <laughs> you knocked his trunks off, huh? I've heard of fighting with bare knuckles, but uh, this is even more unusual. <laughs> What happened? Did you continue the fight? Well, it was stopped momentarily. The referee had to dress him over again. And did he, did he do this in the ring? Uh, in mid-ring. Oh. Well, Eunice, are you interested in anything besides uh, keeping house for uh, Bob? Right now, I'm a tennis clerk at Fauché Junior High School here in Los Angeles. You're a tennis clerk? Mm -hmm. You play tennis? No, I'm an attendance clerk. Oh. How long have you been married? Well, we've been married two years, last February 2nd. That's the first fight you ever lost, isn't it, Bob? <laughs> How's it working out? Do you get along okay? Oh, yes. I think we do. Um, for 18 months, we didn't even have an argument. You never quarreled? Why'd you get married? <laughs> you must have some disagreements. Now, tell me, who handles the money? Bob does. I, I bring my paycheck home and I give it to him. Is he home waiting for it? I mean, <laughs> no, girl, girl, I mean, it's just that... Well, I he gets home ahead of you, though, huh? <laughs> well, I sort of brought up old-fashionedly. I mean, um, I think men should, if they're able to, should handle the money. And, I mean, Bob looks after our finances, and he's able to do it. He went to USC for business administration. Not only that, he hits very hard, doesn't he? <laughs> well, he, I haven't experienced that yet. No, but a man that can knock another man's trunks off is no good to fool around with. What sort of work do you do, Bob? I work for the federal government, don't you? Hmm. How old are you, Bob? Forty-nine. Really? My gosh, I thought you were about twenty-eight. You certainly are a fine-looking man for forty-nine. What do you do that keeps you looking so young? Is it, do you have some secret that you could uh, tell us about? Well, my secret, Groucho is that most people use hot water or warm lukewater to wash their face in. I use cold water every morning, washing my face up with massaging, make the blood run upward. You wash your face up instead of down? Eh? Up instead of down. <laughs> look at me. I look around 120, and I've been washed up for years. <laughs> to try that, Bob. What did, you, what did you say it does when you wash up? It makes the blood run upward. Well, there's no point in me trying that. <laughs> I could never get my blood to rise. My blood is so tired, it goes to bed three hours before I do. <laughs> well, you're a lovely couple, and I'd like to go on talking to you, but now get ready to play your bet your life. All right, you selected uh, colorful expressions. All of these common expressions involve a color. I'll give you the meaning, you give me the expression. If you miss two in a row, you're out. If you get four in a row right, you win $1,000. What is the expression using a color that means ordinances against certain types of entertainment held on Sundays? What kind of laws are those? Those, Mr. Marks, are the blue laws. They, yes, they sure are, they're the blue laws. You have one right, three more right, and you'll have $1,000. What is the expression using a color that means to extinguish all lights during an air raid? That's blackout, Mr. Blackout Marks. is right. You're halfway to $1,000 now. What is the slang expression using a color that means a poor quality of whiskey? 
Is that red eye? Yes, yeah, it sure is. It's red eye. <laughs> One more right, you'll have your thousand dollars. What is the expression using a color that means a mood of serious or deep thought? That could be a brown study. You don't have to go any further. You've won a thousand dollars. Four in a row in a row. You got it. Thank you very much. That shows you what a pugilist, the life of a pugilist, will do for a man. Huh? Of course, the fact that you're in high school doesn't hurt either. Now, you've won $1,000. You can keep it and quit, or you can come back at the end of the show and try to double your money. You may even get a crack at 10000 So go over there and sit down and think it over. And no matter what you decide to do, thanks for being on the show. Now here's Groucho with some words about why the big switch is on to DeSoto. This year's DeSoto was way ahead of our competitors. And yet DeSoto prices start right above the lowest. It's a big car with big car comfort and big car beauty that our competitors will be imitating two or three years from now. It's low, lower than any of our competitors. But it's got as much or more room inside as any of the cars that are much taller. And plenty of road clearance, too. It's really got power and terrific performance. And that new torsion air ride is so smooth, you'll find it hard to believe. Now, I'm not telling you to run right out and buy a DeSoto on my recommendation, but I believe you'll be a wiser automobile buyer if you'll drive this car. See what it has to offer, then price it. And I think you'll be surprised, because this year DeSoto prices start just above the lowest. That's right, Groucho. You can buy a four-door sedan for as little as $2,732.25. That's factory retail price. State and local taxes, transportation, and delivery are extra. Prices may vary according to individual dealer policy. Only $2,732.25 for the most exciting car in the world today. Now, before we go on, Groucho, I have something to give you. This is a big gold potato chip from the... Well, uh... sorry, George. I just had dinner. Huh? Where did you get that? Well, you don't understand, I don't think. This... No, I certainly don't. <laughs> I'm sure you don't. This is from the National Institute of... Uh... National Institute. Uh, that's where they want to send me for a long time. <laughs> I've been fighting it tooth and nail. You're not listening to me, are you? No, I never, never have. I? <laughs> this is... I, I expect you to do the same, George. What? Don't listen to me either. Oh. <laughs> I want to tell you that this is from the uh, National Potato Chip Institute. Oh, how nice. And it's, um, it's actually an award that they give uh, every year to the child of some successful person. And this year, the honor goes to your daughter, Melinda. It's a chip off the old block award, by the oh, way. The, uh, that's the, what they call it? Yeah, the, the chip off the old block. Pretty, pretty clever. You know, by an odd coincidence, uh, my daughter, Melinda, is standing in the wings. Melinda, trot out here, will you? Turn around. Melinda, do you remember last year when you were Queen of the May? Well, this year, you're a solid gold potato chip. <laughs> you know, if you're going to be a chip off the old blockhead and emulate your father, you, you've got to work hard, Melinda. Show business isn't all beer and potato chips. You have to improve your singing and your dancing and, and even diction. I'll show you what I mean. Now, now, say this after me. 
The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plains. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. Again. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. I think she's got it. I think she's got it. Again. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. By George, she's got it. By George, she's got it. Now once again, where does it rain? On the plain, on the plain. And where is that soggy plain? In Spain, in Spain. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Hurricanes hardly happen. How kind of you to let me come. Now once again, where does it rain? On the plain, on the plain. And where is that blasted plain? Great when she gets married, <laughs> and I once again can use my own telephone. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you to see my fair lady because uh, it's very difficult to get tickets, but you could buy the record anyhow. But it's one of the great musicals of all time, and if you have a chance to see it, forget everything else. George, who's next for DeSoto? Miss Cheryl Bullion and Lieutenant Robert O'Reilly are uh, waiting to talk to you, Groucho. So, folks, you've been pleased and meet. Groucho Marx. Welcome to You Bet Your Life. Say the secret word and you each get an extra 50 smackers. It's a common word, something you find around the house. Now, let's see. Cheryl Bullion and Lieutenant Robert O'Reilly. Is this true, Lieutenant? Your last name is Bullion? No, O'Reilly. Oh, really? Well, that's enough of that joke. I just wanted to see if we could work it in. Now I'm going to have a problem working it out. And you are Cheryl Bullion. Is that right? Yes, that's You're not right. O'Reilly, are you? No. No, you uh, Cheryl. Well, you're a fine broth of a lass. How old are you, Cheryl? I'm 18. 18. And how often have you been in the soup? No, no, that's it. <laughs> 18. Are you at the age when you're interested in that certain Tennessee singer uh, whose initials are uh, E.P.? No, I think I'm a little too old for Elvis Presley. Presley? I wasn't thinking of Presley. I was thinking of that other fellow from Tennessee, that uh, Estes Pifova. Huh? <laughs> Where are you from, Cherry? I live in Pomona. Pomona. I, I go to Pomona every year for the county fair. Last year, I won third prize for my upside-down cake. <laughs> well, Cheryl, don't go away. I'll get back to you sooner than you think. <laughs> now, uh, how long have you been in the Army, Bob? 
No, I've been in the Navy, Groucho, and it's about five months. No. Well, what ship are you stationed on? Well, I'm not actually on a ship, Groucho. I'm stationed at the San Diego Naval Training Center. Well, if you're not on a ship, how do you know you're not in the Army? <laughs> I look at my uniform every day when I oh. get up. <laughs> well, if you want to go to sea, the thing for you to do is to go to an optometrist. <laughs> now, you figure that out tomorrow morning when you're looking at your uniform. Well, what do you do down there at the naval base? Well, I'm a doctor, Groucho. A doc in the Navy? That's a very important job, isn't it? If it weren't for those Navy docks, they wouldn't have any place to tie up their battleships. <laughs> well, uh, are you a dry dock, or do you hit the old red eye? <laughs> no, I'm a doctor, Groucho. Just a plain doctor, huh? I'm actually the bone and joint specialist down there at our oh. base. Well, there's a lot of joints around that Navy yard. <laughs> well, are you planning to make a career of the Navy? Uh, no, I'm not, Groucho. You're just practicing on these crapshooters down there, is that <laughs> when, when I finish my uh, service in the Navy, I plan to take hospital, more hospital training back in the Bay Area. In the Bay Area? You mean you're going to do stomach work? <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, Groucho, you Well, has this always been your ambition, to be a doctor? Was that your ambition as a child? Yes, yes, it was my ambition. It was ambition. mine, too, you know. I wanted to be a doctor. Is that right? Yeah. The only closest I got to it was in a picture called The Day at the Races. I played Dr. Hackenbush. <laughs> That's true. I That's believe it. Close I ever got to it. Well, it's about the only truthful thing I've said tonight. <laughs> now, Cheryl, you, you say you're from Pomona? Yes. What is it like down there? For example, what do you do for excitement when things get dull? I mean, do you, do you hop in your car and drive over to Azusa? Oh, no, not Azusa. Oh. Well, where uh, do you go things, to? Well, things haven't been too dull for me around there lately. I was chosen queen of the L.A. County Fair, and that's been keeping me busy until just lately. You were uh, voted uh, the queen of the county fair? Yes. Oh, really? Eh? No, O'Reilly. <laughs> <laughs> You Bet Your Life continued on radio until June 10th, 1960. I was 13. I herded lambs beyond the village on the lee. The magic of the sun, perhaps, or what was it affected me? I felt with joy all overcome, as though with God. A rover operator, Ilya Zakharov, authorization number 00461 of the Luna Agricultural Expedition Program. The time for lunch had long passed by, and still among the weeds I lay, and prayed to God, I know not why. It was so pleasant then to pray. Phantom 9, initialize. But not for long the sun stayed kind. Not long in bliss I prayed. Phantom 9 initialized. It turned into a ball of fire and set the world ablaze. As though just wakened up I gaze the hamlet's drab and poor. And God's blue heavens, even they, are glorious no more. No! 
From Denoucher Media comes a brand new experience in audio horror, Red Odyssey. Starring Alison Cossett, Peter Wicks, Sarah Golding, Erica Sanderson, James Scully, Peter Wyshynski, and Brandon Levine. Red Odyssey, a Lovecraftian horror story you will never forget. Coming September 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. October 21st, 1957, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip visited New York City. It was the final stop on their tour. The next day, they returned to the UK. Meanwhile, in Washington, President Eisenhower was meeting with the UK's Prime Minister Harold Macmillan and NATO Chief Paul Henry Spock. Their chat was over Middle East policy, rocket deployment, and the Soviet Union's launch of Sputnik. On Friday, October 25th at 7.30 a.m., the NBC World News Roundup took to the air, talking of developments. This is Henry Cassidy in Radio Central New York. Now the NBC World News Roundup, major developments and on-the-spot reports by correspondents of NBC News. Here are the headlines. Washington, Eisenhower, Macmillan, Broaden Conference, bring in NATO chief on rocket pool. London, Macmillan's power seen slumping as labor rights win by election for parliament. Cairo, Syria stands firm against Saudi Arabian mediation as United Nations resumes Mideast debate. Moscow, Sputnik losing a race being passed by its own rocket propeller. I'll be back in one minute with the NBC World News Roundup. The glamour backstage at Broadway's newest hit musical show, the spectacular West Side Story. The British and U.S. were butting heads over Middle East policy, while Britain wanted the two countries to share nuclear secrets. France was complaining that the U.S. and England weren't allowing technological access. NATO Chief Spock was expected to invite France to the upcoming talks. After this meeting, Prime Minister Macmillan was to give Canadian PM John Diefenbacher an in-person report on the talk. Gene Kelly, Milton Berle, Tab Hunter, and Tony Martin are among the celebrities who will be visiting you over the Monitor weekend. There'll be comedy by Fibber McGee and Molly and Bob and Ray, music, news, and sports all on Monitor. So start your weekend right with Monitor on Friday night and stay with Monitor all weekend long over most of these same NBC radio stations. And now the NBC World News Roundup. If there have been any doubts among other allies, and there seem to have been some, about the meeting between President Eisenhower and Prime Minister Macmillan, they are being dispelled today. Paul-Henri Spark of Belgium, Secretary General of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, has been invited to the White House. And this is taken as an indication that the other allies will be informed of and included in any new pool of scientific developments. There has been an impression in some other capitals, notably Paris, that they are being bypassed in the Washington conference. That is not the intent of those meeting in Washington, and the invitation to Spock may go far to correct that impression. As Secretary General of NATO, Spock is in a position to report to all 15 members of the Western Alliance. Moreover, after the final meeting this afternoon with President Eisenhower, Prime Minister Macmillan is flying to Canada. And in Ottawa, he is expected to give Prime Minister Diefenbaker a full report on the Washington talks. 
Now for the final phase of the Washington conference, we switch immediately to Arthur Barrio of NBC News in Washington. It seems likely that before the end of the day, we shall have a communique summarizing the Eisenhower-McMillan talks, with heavy emphasis, of course, on the scientific aspects of the conference. Late as it may be, the United States and Great Britain now must try to do something to counter the Russian propaganda gains made by the launching of Sputnik, although the two countries are not concerned with satellites alone. There are here reports that Mr. McMillan has told us the British would like to see some of the 1,500-mile range missiles they were promised at the Bermuda Conference, also that they want a sort of international Manhattan project, not unlike the one that developed our atom bomb, but one that for the moment is impossible because of our laws against sharing atomic secrets. We might swap missile information for some of Britain's atoms for peace data if the law ever is repealed. We might also today hear something of joint American-British plans for the Middle East. About the only agreement here lies in the fact that nothing the leaders of the two countries can say or do will bring about an immediate remedy. Something may be said along the lines of a joint economic aid program, a program designed to try to stop the economic gains the Russians have made in the Middle East. It's no secret the British have not liked our Middle East policy. Neither have the Americans made secret the fact they believe the British on occasion have been rather high-handed in that area, especially in the Suez Canal action of a year ago. But on this, the final day of the talks, signs are we may decide it will be to our interest to join hands scientifically and economically. This is Art Barrio, NBC News, Washington. The Prime Minister's Conservative Party's grip was loosening. The Socialist Labor Party had recently taken a seat in the House of Commons, and the leaders of two major trade unions were going ahead with wage demands to counter inflation. While Prime Minister McMillan has been engaged in diplomatic talks in Washington, his supporters have been involved in politics at home with some perhaps surprising results. Not that the Conservative government seems to be in any danger, another general election in Britain is not due before 1959, but the Conservative Party is having its troubles. We get that story from Bob Abernathy of NBC News in London. Prime Minister McMillan's Conservative government has just suffered two more blows here at home. It's been roundly beaten in another special election for one seat in the House of Commons, and the leaders of two big trade union organizations have made it clear they have no intention of holding back their wage demands to help in the battle against inflation. The election was at Ipswich, about 70 miles north of London. The socialist candidate, Dingle Foote, won easily, doubling the previous socialist majority. Next came the conservative, and last, but showing strongly, a liberal. The government's power in the House of Commons is not affected by this, but it's one more sign of discontent. The unions announcing new demands are the building trades and the railwaymen. They make it quite plain that part of the increases they want is to cover their members from the effects of recent government financial policies. This is Bob Abernethy, NBC News, London. The United Nations General Assembly meets at 3 o'clock this afternoon, New York time, to resume its debate on the Middle East. Three days of delay have failed to bring about any improvement in the crisis between Syria and Turkey, and the delegates are going back to their deliberations. Western delegates are preparing speeches charging the Soviet Union with stirring up the tension to increase its own influence in the Middle East. No doubt the communist delegates have speeches of their own, accusing the United States of responsibility for the disturbance. Eventually, some kind of commission may be formed to investigate the situation. But for an on-the-spot report now on the Middle East, we call in NBC correspondent Wells Hangen in Cairo. 
Syria and Egypt, in effect, told King Saud today to withdraw his mediation offer or have it thrown in his face. Their new, tougher line coincides with reports that Soviet troops, now under the command of Marshal Rokossovsky, are maneuvering with atomic weapons near the Turkish border. One influential Cairo daily says Rokossovsky's appointment shows there must be huge forces under his command, meaning Russia still thinks war is imminent. In Damascus, Syria's ailing President Kuwatli has finally bowed to leftist pressure and asked Saudi Arabia to cancel its offer to mediate the Turkish-Syrian dispute. Syrian army leaders and politicians will press their charges against Turkey with Moscow's support in the UN Assembly later today. Syria says four Turkish planes trespassed near the port of Latakia yesterday, while another Turkish craft overflew a Syrian border town. This is Wells Hangen, NBC News, Cairo. All countries were listening for word from Moscow on how Sputnik was doing. The U.S. was focusing on reports that its carrier rocket was outpacing the satellite, while also continuing to push its own space advancements. The Russians have released a new report this morning on the flight of Sputnik just three weeks after the Earth satellite was launched. We hear about that from Irving R. Levine of NBC News in Moscow. The Sputnik's carrier rocket now is so far ahead of the Sputnik that it's behind it again. Perhaps this statement takes a bit of explaining. Well, the daily Soviet communique on the movement of the satellite has been telling how many miles ahead of the satellite is the expended rocket that carried the Sputnik into orbit around the Earth and then began going around with it. The rocket, by spiraling closer to Earth each time around, has gotten so far in front of the Sputnik that it's now two-thirds of the way around the world ahead of the Sputnik. Stated another way, the rocket is now a third of the world behind the Sputnik. And that's the way the daily Soviet communique chooses to state it today. The communique adds that in several days the rocket will bypass the Sputnik again. Still, though, the Russians are saying nothing about how close to the Earth the rocket has come and how much longer it may be expected to stay aloft. This is Irving R. Levine, NBC News, Moscow. The United States has been sending up a shower of rockets of its own before and since the launching of Sputnik. The latest, a far-side rocket of the Air Force, is reported to have gone up yesterday almost 4,000 miles. If confirmed, that would surpass all known records for altitude reached by any projectile, including Sputnik. The far side was launched from a platform supported by a balloon over the Inuetok Atoll in the Pacific. A briefing on the results will be held this morning in the Pentagon. On Saturday, October 26th, Sputnik 1's batteries ran out after its 326th orbit around the Earth. The following Monday, Chitzak Ben-Zvi was re-elected president of Israel by the Knesset Congress. The next day, Moshe Dweck threw a grenade in the Knesset chambers, injuring several ministers. In the wake of Turkish elections, riots broke out in six different locations. And in Flagstaff, Arizona, a U.S. Air Force tanker plane crashed into a mountain, killing all 16 crew members. Now, hear this. 
Tonight, you have a date with Life and the World, the exciting new radio program that explores in sound the picture stories in each week's issue of Life magazine. Now to fascinating human interest features, there's added a new dimension, the dimension of sound. The actual voices of the people most intimately associated with stories of human interest gathered from the four corners of the earth. Keep your date with Life and the World tonight and every weeknight over most of these same NBC stations. And now, more news. The first anniversary of the Hungarian rebellion, repressed by the Russians, has passed quietly. The Russians are getting ready to celebrate joyfully another anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution next month. But all may not be so quiet as it seems in the Communist Empire, so let's try to get a report now from Jim Robinson of NBC News in Tokyo. On an island near Okinawa, 11 Chinese tell how they made their desperate but successful escape from Red China. Anti-Red passengers forced a ship's captain and part of the crew to change course and sail for Formosa. One sailor was killed, another tossed overboard, and the captain wounded in a bloody fight over control of the vessel. After subduing the pro-communist elements, the passengers discovered they knew nothing of sailing the ship, let alone navigating it. For 11 days, they tossed on stormy seas, most of them without food or water. Also, the ship ran out of fuel. Finally, the landing at the American-controlled Okinawan Island. Next stop, Formosa. This is Jim Robinson, NBC News, Tokyo. The French cabinet crisis has been complicated this morning by spreading strikes. Covering that story is NBC's Leaf Eid in Paris. For the second time in nine days, France is flat on its back. Today's strike is near general, called by the communist-led CGT Federation and the Catholic CFTC labor group. French railroads are dead. Paris bus and subway systems are strike-bound. Transatlantic planes are being routed to other countries. Telegrams and letters are not being delivered. Garbage is piling up. The construction, metalworking, and shipbuilding industries are tied up tightly. We may have a water shortage before the day is out. Intercity telephone service is shaky. And before nightfall, we expect news of another clash between the violent shipyard workers of Saint-Nazaire and thousands of guard mobile and federal riot troops. In last evening's clash, one worker was killed, 30 others sent to the hospital in a battle in which tear gas bombs and cobblestones rained like confetti and rifle butts were in free play. There were also battles at Nantes and Le Havre. Only the refusal of socialist unions to strike today saved France from complete paralysis. Amid this anarchy, Guy Mollet tries to form a government. His chances look better, but he's still not sure of making it. This is Leif Eid, NBC News, Paris. Now again, your announcer. Right now, the World Health Organization of the United Nations is working to conquer dozens of dread diseases, many of them found right here in the United States. If this United Nations work continues at its present pace, the coming generations may never know many of the diseases we now fear most. The United Nations works in many other ways, too. For example, the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization teaches people in underdeveloped areas how to produce the essentials of life for themselves. They learn to stand on their own two feet, to need less help from outside. Most important of all, this United Nations work is our best hope for peace, because well-fed, well-clothed people don't nurture the discontent and hatreds that can lead to war. The UN works toward permanent peace. For the booklet, The UN in Action, Write to U.S. Committee for the U.N., Box 1957, Washington 13, D.C. That's the U.S. Committee for the U.N., Box 1957, 
Washington 13, D.C. Now again, the World News Roundup. The Executive Council of the AFL-CIO meeting in Washington is not content to rest with its suspension yesterday of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. The Council proceeds today to investigate the bakers and United Textile Workers. They, too, are charged with corruption, and they, too, may be suspended. Suspension of the Teamsters from AFL-CIO membership will hold until the union removes its president-elect, James R. Hoffa, and otherwise gets rid of alleged corrupt elements. This is Henry Cassidy. And that's the NBC World News Roundup, produced by NBC News. Boxing tonight from Madison Square Garden. You'll get all the action on Cavalcade of Sports over most of these NBC stations. As the clock ticks towards All Hallows' Eve, we'll wind down where we began in last month's episode of Breaking Walls, with the October 30th, 1957 episode of Life in the World on NBC. The October 14th Life magazine cover featured Little Rock Central High School. The October 21st cover featured American scientists plotting Sputnik's orbit, while the October 28th cover featured Queen Elizabeth opening Canadian Parliament. This episode features a speech by poet Carl Sandburg and a rare interview with Frank Lloyd Wright both speaking about Chicago. Life and the World. NBC Radio, in association with the editors of Life magazine, brings you an added dimension to radio reporting. Each weeknight at this time, guided by the contents of Life magazine, we will explore in sound the people, places, and events in Life and the World. Good evening, this is Leon Pearson, substituting for Frank Blair. Tonight, a historic literary first from Chicago. Carl Sandburg's new poem, Chicago Dynamic. Another salutation to Chicago from Frank Lloyd Wright. Whatever it does, it does in a great big way. In 60 seconds, we'll bring you these unique features. But first, hear this. Both Sandberg and Wright spent significant time in Chicago. Sandberg was back in Chicago debuting a new poem about the city. His speech from the banquet by the Chicago Dynamic Committee was recorded. Just wait until you see the forward look, look, look. Here comes another car with the forward look. This is Bill Lundigan reminding you to look for the 1958 Plymouth, Dodge, DeSoto, Chrysler, and Imperial. For 58 more than ever, the forward look is the advanced design. See it at your dealers soon. Carl Sandburg, who had worked in and around Chicago as a milkman, a field hand, 
dishwasher, house painter, newspaper reporter, in 1916 put himself and his adopted city on the map, poetically speaking, with his famous Chicago. Remember the lines, hog butcher of the world, tool maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads, and the nation's freight handler? Well, a few months ago, Chicago's unofficial poet laureate returned to the city at the invitation of a group of industrialists and planners called the Chicago Dynamic Committee, formed to honor the city's architectural heritage. His assignment was to write a new poem about Chicago, and to do it, he visited new buildings and historic old ones, new steel mills, old haunts of his own, and even re-examined the Chicago area from a helicopter. His poem was delivered last week in the form of a speech at a Chicago dynamic banquet, and the current issue of Life magazine prints excerpts from it. Wanting you to enjoy a rare treat, we placed our Life in the World microphone before the distinguished American poet. We must think anew, we must act anew. You cut loose from old traditions and begin to make new one. This Chicago has done in previous dynamic periods. It has elements of toil, combat, risk, taking chances, departing from the known into the unknown. In this spirit, during an earlier Chicago dynamic, the skyscraper was born. Today's Chicago dynamic has cut loose from old traditions and begun to make new ones. Yesterday's skyscrapers are overtowered by steel-clad structures rising far taller with ease and grace. There are three questions. Where did we come from? Where are we now? Where are we going? Chicago Dynamics unafraid. Another distinguished American in just a moment on life and the world. Halloween is our kids' night to howl, and they do make the most of it. In spite of their noise, their costumes, the children wearing a little orange and black UNICEF tag are angels in disguise. For these children have chosen to turn their Halloween fun into help for other children all over the world. Frank Lloyd Wright settled in Chicago shortly after the Great Fire of 1871. He was 90 at the time of this interview, and as passionate as ever. His Guggenheim Museum was under construction in New York, while he dreamed of a mile-high office building for Chicago. With the few coins collected, the future and well-being of a score of needy children can be a reality. Our UNICEF junior ambassadors know that when Halloween comes to an end, they hold in their hands a lifeline that reaches around the world. So when a UNICEF goblin knocks on your door, please welcome him. His trick is to treat other children all over the world, and you can help. The Chicago of steel and stone, of mortar and brick, has an ever-changing profile. A man who has done much to change the profile of all of America is there now. And as Carl Sandburg creates enduring monuments in words, so does this man create his enduring and, in many cases, controversial monuments in steel and stone. He has envisioned, among other things, a skyscraper a mile high. His artistic life is dedicated to bringing a dynamic, progressive architectural tomorrow 
into the soaring realities of today. Life and the world sets its microphone in front of that master of a pungent and astringent point of view, Frank Lloyd Wright. Chicago's growth has been dynamic. And it is a big city, and it's too big, like all the other cities. Chicago, of course, has one of the greatest spirits of any great city. Whatever it does, it does in a great big way. Architecturally speaking, what do you think of Chicago, its good points and its bad ones? Well, architecturally speaking, of course, it's, it has given birth to what they call the curtain wall construction. It's the old idea of rolling steel into lumber and using it the way, the only way they ever knew how to use anything in the way of beams and posts like lumber. Now, that's the old 19th century construction. Now, long ago, 50 years ago, a new way of using steel economically came into architecture, I think largely by way of my own efforts. Now we know how to build buildings from the inside out instead of from the outside in by turning the steel into strands and uh, wires and use it purely for its pull, its strength and tension, which is its great economy. And that's the way 20th century buildings should be built. Are there any plans now to build a mile-high building? Yes. There are several murmurs and rumbles in various directions. But I called the mile-high the Illinois, and I want to see it built by Chicago. It's the old Chicago spirit that will build it. Now, the Chicago spirit, I imagine, at the present time is rather weak. Now, what it needs is the mile high to put it there where it belongs. If Chicago is dynamic, the mile high is its dynamics. From Chicago to London, for news of efforts of another architectural nature, the building of Western defense, in just a moment. Well, I want to go there, when he calls my number, and I want to go there, when he calls my name, oh Lord. Well, hi there, everybody. This is Red Foley, and right at this minute, I'm sort of combining work and pleasure, you might say, by enjoying some of the good harmony of the Marksman Quartet, and also picking out some of their songs to do on future broadcasts of our Red Foley show here on NBC. You know, Saturday has come to be my favorite day of the whole week, and I think there's a pretty good chance that we can make it a better day than ever for you with the fun that we stir up here in the Ozarks. In addition to the marksmen, I'll bring with me some of the other top favorites in our field, and of course, uh, the guests that you tell us you want to hear. So let us be a regular part of your Saturday schedule. Won't you do that, please? Tune in our NBC program, The Red Foley Show, and we'll do our doggondest to make it worth your while. Last week in Washington, British and American government leaders met to discuss their joint problems, one of the problems that of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. A heads-of-government meeting of NATO was planned. This morning, President Eisenhower announced that he would attend the NATO conference. To get the British ideas of this coming meeting... NBC correspondent Joseph C. Harsh went to Foreign Secretary Selwyn Lloyd. 
Apparently, you've all agreed now that it's desirable not only to have the normal NATO Council meeting, but also to have it at head of government level. What is the need to give this meeting the special character which was mentioned in the Washington communique? Well, the purpose of the consultations in Washington was to agree upon the principle of interdependence. And this was not meant to be an exclusively Anglo-American development. On the contrary, our purpose is to bring in our friends and allies of the free world. And we, for our part, welcome a meeting at head of government level. We think that will maintain the momentum of these discussions, and it will show to our allies that we mean business, and we really want their cooperation. Does NATO need refurbishing? I take it that refurbishing of NATO is really the purpose of going to this high level. Well, I think it's quite inaccurate to talk like that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with NATO. It's been the shield behind which Western Europe has lived in comparative security since 1949. But to maintain the vitality of any alliance, new ideas and new impulses are needed. Uh, and NATO, backed by the nuclear power of the West, is still the main protection for us in this island. Why did you make reference in the communique to support for Turkey, which presupposes, I suppose, the threat of a Russian attack upon Turkey? Well, Turkey is a, a staunch ally of ours. Uh, the Soviet Union have recently been threatening Turkey. In my view, the Soviet Union have been increasing tension in the Middle East in that way, and we thought it right to make it absolutely clear that if Turkey is attacked, the United States and the United Kingdom will stand by their obligations to Turkey under the North Atlantic Treaty. Has there been, over this last period of time, a real threat to Syria by or from Turkey? I do not believe there has been any threat to the independence of Syria from Turkey or from any Western power. I think the threat to Syrian independence comes from a very different quarter. You think it's entirely fictitious? I do. Complete false, in the hood. All right, now, Mr. Selwyn Lloyd... Do you think that the Washington communique, or at any rate its purpose, has or will reduce the dangers of Soviet expansionism in the Middle East? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, because we want to live at peace with the Soviet Union. We don't covet an inch of their territory, and we have no intentions contrary to their interests. But what we are not certain about is whether they really wish to live at peace with us. They talk a lot about peace, but their deeds seem calculated to increase tension and conflict between the nations. Therefore, until we are absolutely certain that they genuinely want peace and have shown proof that they want it, we have to look to our own defenses and our own protection. I believe that the Washington Declaration indicates the ways in which the nations of the free world can the more efficiently cooperate, the more efficiently pool their resources, and therefore maintain their security. In that way, I believe the Declaration will contribute to stability and so to peace. And that's life and the world. This is Leon Pearson substituting tonight for Frank Blair and concluding this 68th edition of Life and the World. Tonight's program was developed through the worldwide facilities of Life and NBC News. This is NBC. Fortify yourself on cold mornings with steaming hot oatmeal, Quaker Oats or Mother's Oats. Cooks in one minute.
on October 29, 1957. Head of MGM, Louis B. Mayer, died of leukemia. He was 73. The next day, Variety magazine carried his obituary. Although Mayer was often disliked and even feared by many, director Clarence Brown remembered. He made more stars than all the rest of the producers in Hollywood put together. He knew how to handle talent, and he knew that to be successful, he had to have the most successful people in the business working for him. He was like Hearst in the newspaper business. He made an empire out of this thing. However, both movie studios and the entertainment industry were rapidly changing. As was America. But the only way past is through. So forward we go, in time that is, in the next episode of Breaking Walls. How easily and how quickly people change their story or forget what they said or forget what they felt or forget even what they knew over a comparatively short time. And I can remember the first time that I heard of Kennedy. This was back in the days when uh, Ike was president and Kennedy began to be heard just a little bit about. And I remember sitting one night in a guy's apartment and we were talking about politics and the whole phenomenon of American politics. And he was the hot under the collar type, the idealist, the burning idealist, the angry man who uh, subscribes to all the magazines, the right ones, who uh, subscribes to all the right causes, and this is even more important, who is always generally considered in our time and in our world a sensitive, truthful man. Well, we're sitting there, and he was really bugged, and, and uh, <laughs> he was saying, among other things, that he felt that one of the problems with American politics, and in politics in general, was that it's usually run by old men. It's, it's usually in the, in the hands of men who don't have energy. Idealism has long since disappeared from their lives. Dreams have disappeared. And there they are. They're, they're, uh, they're old men, and they don't really know what's going on in the world of the now. This was his whole thesis, which is a reasonable one, although not necessarily a true one. And then in the course of the conversation, he says, you know, he said, have you ever heard of Jack Kennedy? You know, I'd heard of Senator Kennedy, that's all, just very vague name. You know, like many senators, you hear the senator from Illinois or the senator from Utah or something, a name. And he says, now, this, this is an example of a guy who obviously will never, never possibly be elected president of the United States. Why? He's young. He's too young. He's got ideas. He's got idealism. He's dedicated in one thing and another. Well, I don't have to tell you that shortly after Mr. Kennedy was elected, this was one of the first guys I heard yelling about the fact that Kennedy was too young. Next time on Breaking Walls, in honor of the 60th anniversary of John Kennedy's assassination, we spotlight Gene Shepard and his November 1963 broadcasts. The reading material used in today's episode was I Have a Lady in the Balcony, Memories of a Broadcaster in Radio and TV by George Ansborough. On the Air by John Dunning. Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg. 
as well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine, the New England Historical Society, the New York Times, and Sponsor Magazine. On the interview front, Stan Freeberg, Byron Kane, and Peggy Weber spoke to Spurdvac. For more info, go to spurdvac.com. Andre Barouche, Ken Carpenter, Virginia Gregg, John Goodell, and Agnes Moorhead spoke with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Jackson Beck, Vincent Price, and Bill Spear spoke to Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these interviews at goldenage-wtic.org. Jack Benny's snippet was recorded by CBS and played for their 50th anniversary in 1977. Selected music featured in today's episode was Plunkett's Lament by George Fenton, The Pavane and Window to the Sky by Michael Silverman, As Time Goes By by Herman Hupfeld, Road by George Winston, Metamorphosis II, arranged for harp by Elizabeth Hainan, and Amazing Grace by Windrum Spirit. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio soap opera set in 1835 New York City. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls, episode 145, will spotlight Gene Shepard through the lens of John F. Kennedy's assassination in November of 1963. This episode will be available beginning November 1st, 2023, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until November 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 144. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Oh, he loved. Oh, he